0: Welcome to Episode 299 with my guest, Jen Curran. I'm um, Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I'm a jackass. Uh, and uh, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for the show is mentalpod.com. MetalPod Pod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Um, as I've said many times on this podcast, I like to avoid politics because I don't want this show to be divisive, but if you've uh, not been living in a cave the last 10 days, you know that uh, sexual assault has become a really important topic of discussion. Um, let me preface this by saying I don't favor any one political candidate. Uh, 99% of political candidates disgust me. Um, so I don't have a dog in this fight. Um, if you are a huge fan of Donald Trump, uh, a I'm shocked that you also enjoy this podcast. Uh, B, you might want to fast forward through the next uh, minute. I hope you don't uh, so you can hear what I have to say, my thoughts on uh, the things that he was recorded saying um, it's it's difficult for me to talk about this and not feel not be in my head because I'm on both sides of of I have both been uh somebody who mistreated women and I've also been the object of uh being sexualized and objectified. Um, I, I was by my mom. She grabbed my butt until I asked her to stop uh, at the behest of a, a therapist when I was 24 years old. She used to grab my butt and tell me how attractive I was. Uh, those of you that are regular listeners to the show know that there's... Uh, listen to the story of me being interviewed if you want to know more. Uh, I say all this to uh, let you know that I am I hope I don't come across as being on a soapbox, um, because I am far, far from perfect, and I and I hope that the way I approach this topic is even-handed, and uh, and and rigorously self-honest. That being said, um, I am horrified that people are calling what he said. Uh, locker room talk because he admitted uh, to to doing things, and I think people are calling it locker room talk because they don't want to face the truth that um, that so much sexual assault is not only happening but is considered okay. And oh, they're just being men. Um, it's and I'm not even going to get into the fact that that it happens to males as well because this is not the time um the to go down that go down that road um here's here's my thoughts i was i was sent this email um by a nice woman named uh Neav, who's from Ireland and she was talking about another uh controversy um about how uh Donald Trump uh calls his daughter, Ivanka, a piece of ass, compares her with women he meets, is overly touchy with her, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she wondered what my thoughts are uh, considering the covert sexualization I experienced uh, from my mom. And, and so I wrote back to her and said, uh, in a word, it, it's really fucking hard to watch uh, him do those things to her. Um, And it makes me really sick that the media isn't doing any stories on covert incest or how to support survivors of sexual assault. They are the most important people in this whole story, and they're the ones that are being talked about the least. I haven't seen a single story on how do you comfort somebody who's been uh, sexually assaulted? What are the variety of uh, ways that that people experience sexual assault? Because I tell you, I, from my personal experience, I suffered for years because I would never considered what happened to me inappropriate or damaging or traumatizing. And I've read a gazillion surveys from you guys who, you know, put it under that category. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. And it's so clearly sexual abuse. You don't see any of that stuff in the media. That is really, really frustrating to me. But as far as the thing about um the... And I can't even imagine how triggered survivors are watching watching this. And my heart just goes out to them. Um... And even if you're somebody who thinks, knows what Trump said and does is horrible, think about the way you talk about it when you're on a talk show. You know, there were people on a talk show making pussy-grabbing jokes. Well, imagine... If you're somebody who had their pussy grabbed and it was traumatizing and it makes it hard for you to be in social situations or trust your partner and you're watching a talk show and your experience is is being minimized in that way. Um it's I know there's a fine line and, and, and them laughing, they're not laughing at the victims, but they're just think about it when you're When you're talking about this subject, don't assume that the person in your circle that you're having a conversation with hasn't experienced something like that. And as far as the locker room talk, I've been in locker rooms since I was eight years old. So what's that, 45 years I've been in locker rooms? Three quarters of the conversation that was recorded, yeah, I would say I've heard in locker rooms. But I walk up to them and I just start kissing them or I grab him by the pussy. I've never heard that in a locker room, and if somebody did say that in a locker room, I can tell you this much uh that person would be treated differently uh after that, certainly at least by me i I don't know. I'd probably be uh dumbstruck and not sure exactly what to say other than that's fucking wrong, but here here's what I find really disturbing because he said that it was just locker room talk. The worst case scenario is that it wasn't just locker room talk, and he really is a serial assaulter who at age 59 still found it impressive and funny. And the best we can hope for is that a potential leader of the free world not only thinks sexual assault is something to brag about, but he so badly wants the host of Access Hollywood to think he does it, his judgment, the same judgment he will use to lead, tells him this, impressing the host of Access Hollywood is important enough to lie about. That is fucking disturbing. Let's get on with the show. Um, I hope that didn't come across as soapboxy. Uh, there's a part of me that feels like a hypocrite because I have mentioned many times I've mistreated women in my past and I'd like to think that at least I'm trying to better myself. I've seen the wrong and the way I objectified women um, and I'm trying to learn from it and become a better person. Does that make me a better person? I don't know. Um, I feel like Given that, it's okay for me to speak my opinion about these things. Is that enough backpedaling for you? All right. Let's read a couple of surveys, and then you can uh, tell me to go fuck myself. This was a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Blazonk. And about his depression, he writes, like having all the answers, but the only question is, what the fuck is the matter with you? That is a T-shirt. T-shirt. Well, maybe too long for a T-shirt, but uh, Nim Harper writes about uh, her bulimia. Cosmetic companies are always advertising lipstick that's kiss-proof, but if they really wanted to impress me, they'd make one that's purge-proof. Sadly, that's that. That is probably true. Thank you for that. Uh, Unanimous uh, writes about his depression. My seasonal depression is like a bear hug. It's warm and fuzzy for a brief moment before it crushes the life out of me. And uh, Kamikaze with a helmet uh, writes about her uh, depression uh, and being a sex crime victim, uh, wondering as I eye my box cutter and contemplating suicide whether there are germs on the blade. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. (laughs)
1: So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job... Mental illness.
0: ...is convincing myself...
1: I'm so alone.
0: ...why... ...I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality.
1: Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed.
0: Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house.
1: I was able to get myself out of Scientology.
0: Put a gun to my mother's head and... who is a writer, actor comedian and improviser, and you're nervous as hell?
1: oh my god, I'm so nervous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are you nervous about?
1: um gosh uh all of it I guess i this is un unfamiliar to me to talk openly and not privately. do you know what I mean to talk openly but
0: so it's not talking to me, it's that this is going to exactly. p- potentially air.
1: Yeah, exactly, that somebody might hear it besides you and me. And I feel like I have a lot of chats like about this sort of subject matter, like feelings and stuff with good friends and people in my life. It's not like a subject that I shy away from, but it's crazy to start putting that out there as like, part of my art almost, you know what I mean, which I think is something that – Are you starting to? I'm just going to move your mic a little bit closer. Yeah, sure.
0: Are you starting to uh, express the parts of yourself you struggle with in in your comedy?
1: Yeah, yeah, I am starting to. I've been starting to write more about it, and I've been starting to just talk more on stage and let my experience so far in life inform jokes I tell and sketch ideas I have and improv scenes I do, and it's—I don't know why it— makes me nervous but it does i think it's i think i've tried to shield that part of myself from other people for a really long time
0: yeah i think most of us in the in in the arts probably yeah have sure and then it just comes leaking out you know (laughs) just like a little sprinkle you know from a crack in a dam that's
1: right well what's that what's that what are you
0: talking about you know i think for a lot of us maybe i'm just speaking for myself we search for the right vehicle to be able to pour our soul out. And for me, in, in straight stand up, I could never get vulnerable in comedy clubs, because the anticipation of a drunk, hostile person that wasn't familiar with my comedy um, would shatter yeah. uh, the any type of Vulnerability, I could, I could get going. So I, you know, I was never really able to take the suit of armor off. And I think it's why my finger was always pointed outwards about what was wrong. Yeah. Uh, You know, I could maybe make allusions to, um, oh, you know, I'm not so great in this area, but, um, it was really, really hard. What is it? A general anxiety you have about being judged or are there specific things you're afraid people are going to know and think about you?
1: I think it's both. I think I struggle from a general anxiety for sure. Um, I also tend to be, which doesn't always come across like in my sort of public personality, but I tend to be like a little like who gives a fuck, you know, like, uh, I'm the friend that's like, oh, she probably she probably did shoplift that thing. She probably did, you know, get arrested because I have these crazy stories and experiences that you wouldn't necessarily assume by looking at me. But I have a general shame in general, <laughs> just mm-hmm. always. Um, and then specific things that are like, oh, I don't want people to know that I went through that. I don't want people to know that well, I went through that. let's get into those. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> you know, I, for
0: some reason, I was thinking today about the first show that I had scheduled after 9-11. And it was, at a, it was a one-nighter in Dubuque, Iowa. And I was so nervous because so many of my bits had to do with death. Mm. And I was like, how the fuck am I going to handle this? And I just got honest with the audience. And I said, I'm nervous. You, As you know, because they came to see me, so they were familiar with my stand-up. And I said, as you know... So much of my fucking comedy has to do with death, and I'm really afraid of how to handle this. So I decided I'm going to do the most inappropriate bit I can right right at the top, and let's get it out of the way. And they applauded. And And from then on, it was like, Everything was fine, right? Exactly. So, let's just get the worst of the worst right. out of the way. Okay, Plus, okay. you know that that makes me you love happy it. <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I hear that other people are as fucked up oh, as God. I am. It just, it's like, a, yeah, it's yeah. like just a big fluffy pillow,
1: right? Well, I guess the worst of the worst is that I had like a relatively normal childhood that. Now that I'm older, I look back and I'm like, oh, okay, I can see some of where it wasn't normal. But as a kid, I felt fine. And when I got to college uh, at 17, I went to NYU. I'm from the Midwest originally. Are so you it was a smarty
0: pants? Did you, did you graduate high school pants, early? Yeah. You can't yeah. believe how many guests we have really? on this show. Um, I think there's a link sometimes yeah. between uh, mental yeah. uh, struggles and...
1: I totally believe that. Your brain just High functioning works. High-functioning brains. Exactly.
0: High-functioning, low-functioning brains. <laughs> exactly. You know? Exactly. But go ahead.
1: Yeah. So I did not graduate early, but I was young for my class. So I was 17 when I moved to New York from the Midwest. Mm. Um, and almost immediately, almost overnight, I fell into a horrible depression that I'm probably still not totally free from. Uh, but the worst years of it were three or four years of just like incapable agony, incapable agonizing that ultimately led to gaining a ton of weight, became morbidly obese, like a hundred pounds heavier than I am now, dropped out of school, was homeless for a period of time. Punched a uh, gay boyfriend I had in the mouth in the heat Did of. Did you know he was gay at
0: the time? Yes,
1: sort of, kind of. You one didn't of those. Want to,
0: didn't really want to confront it because um, you didn't yeah, want to be probably. alone. Or? It was
1: we were like teen, not teenagers. We were twenty maybe, but we were young, a young twenty, and it was like one of those long term you know, five years in and out of just, he was bisexual, maybe he was this, that, we were friends, we were lovers, it was all over the map, and we were super codependent. It was one of a handful of toxic relationships that I had invited into my life. Punched him in the mouth, got kicked out of the apartment I was living in. By him? By another person who sort of like... The referee? Inserted herself into the situation, and it became... Like a rock bottom for me. I didn't have a friend in the world. I didn't have a dollar in my bank account. I was living out of my car in New York City. That was getting broken into, you know, occasionally. I uh, I just didn't have a leg to stand on. And I was like a good kid from the suburbs of Chicago who got good grades and like was in theater and like. Which
0: suburb are you from?
1: Uh, Crystal Lake.
0: Oh, okay, west, out west. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, northwest. Yeah. I'm from Homewood.
1: Okay. Yeah. Great. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um so I just was like a good kid and my family had a ton of expectations. There was an unbelievable amount of pressure on my weight, my grades, my career path. Um well let's just back up for a second. Yeah. So it imploded basically.
0: <laughs> you know, you said I had this great childhood and then you mentioned there was this tremendous amount of pressure yes. on my weight and my grades. You know, that sounds to me like conditional love. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's not a great environment. No,
1: it wasn't, and but I thought for a long time that it was. So it wasn't until because
0: you felt like they care for me. This is this yeah. is love, and and I'm sure I'm, to them they do care for you, and to this day care for you. But I don't think they understand that it's your life, and exactly. there's a difference between guiding and browbeating.
1: Exactly, I was the oldest grandchild of a single mom. Who was the youngest of her brothers and sisters. She was 19 when I was born. And my dad was also 19. The youngest of his family. And he had 13 siblings. Wow. So these two babies of the family who were just major fuck ups at the time got pregnant and they were like strong Catholic families who just had these like black sheep 19 year old kids. Um, and they lived in the families lived in the same town and it was like, A big deal that there was this baby and so it was sort of i was rallied around in a positive way where it was like we're not gonna do you have any siblings no i don't only child i've had step siblings half siblings i have sort of a handful of a handful of do i have half siblings? i like to consider that
0: more of a smattering of cops episodes (laughs) when when there's like more than three marriages and there's and and people pause and go wait is it a half brother or step half brother I just, yeah, I just want to have what you gonna do <laughs> what you gonna do?
1: I got married this past October, and we were uh giving a little speech uh after this very casual ceremony, very casual nontraditional wedding and I was standing up there with the microphone, and I was talking about my husband's parents who've been married for over forty years, and then it just popped into my mind to say, You know, and my parents have been married a combined total of seven times. And it got like a big laugh, but it was also a very humbling moment to be like, "That's true." Like, were your parents there? Yeah, and they Did like they laugh. Yeah, they appreciate. I think yeah. that it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. You know. Well, that's
0: good. It sounds like they have a a sense of humor. Yes, you know, like there's a a good, warm, self effacing side to them.
1: Absolutely. Which... And growing up, there was a ton of laughter. My family is. I was mostly raised by my mom's family. Very intelligent, interesting you know, curious people. And so I had the feeling that it was a great childhood. I didn't want for a lot, you know, we had a nice house, it wasn't a big deal. But it wasn't until I got older and started going to therapy that I was like, Oh, and I was in acting school um, at NYU for a few years before I really started melting down. And I had the very first moment that I started to think something's up with my history was that I had this voice teacher who could sense that I was like really struggling. I would get tearful a lot in like voice class for no reason that I could understand. And she pulled me aside and asked me if I came from a critical background. And I'd never considered that or thought of that. I had never heard that phrase before. And I like thought for a moment and I was like, oh, yeah, but like, don't isn't that isn't that the thing? And like that love? We all? Yeah, exactly. Isn't that what we're all doing? Like, it's, this is not good enough. You need to do this. You need to do that. I thought that was what it was to be parented or to have a family. So, and then being this only child, um, the oldest of the youngest, the youngest of the oldest, you know, because when I was born, there weren't any other grandchildren on my mom's side of the family, a very tight-knit family. So it was almost like I was an additional sibling. My grandparents were almost parents. I was almost the fifth child, you know, a sibling to my mom in some respects. Watched her grow up. I remember her turning 30 and thinking, like, you're getting so old, you know, just having these, like, adult thoughts about her. Just realizing the other day that she was 37 when I went to college. And, like, I'm 33. So it's so crazy to realize, like, how many huge things we were both going through and how young and probably ill-equipped she really was to be dealing with it all so it was a lot there was a lot and i did not for being like super smart and aware i had no idea that that's what was going on until everything started falling apart
0: get back to the voice teacher moment what else do you remember about about that was it just an epiphany that oh my god there was more criticism than i thought there was
1: Well, I remember being almost angry at her that she asked me that, like, it's not your business, you know, but it really, I mean, obviously, I've remembered that phrase to this day, it really rung true for me, and almost having this wave of, like, understanding and faces and names and people popping into my head who, if you had asked who had been influential, I wouldn't have listed them, but as soon as we use this critical context. I was like, oh, yeah, all everybody. And so because I didn't have a dad around, my parents got divorced when I was four months old. I mean, they were barely married. He was 19, 20, 21, just went on with his life essentially for a little while. And all of my mom's siblings were really involved in me being raised essentially. So by the time I was headed to college. It was a group decision where I was going to go, what I was going to study, but I was also this, like stubborn, outspoken, bossy kid. so I didn't really take to that. I wasn't, I, I didn't you know they didn't want me to study acting. It was a huge thing for, forever. ever since I, you know, I was 10 years old when I did my first play, and from then on, it was like a di- trying to dissuade me from that being something I was going to pursue. And my weight was always a huge issue. What would they say? Oh, my God. It was awful. It was uh, there, my mom and her sister and my grandmother, the three influential women in my world at the time. And her sister, I remember, I was probably eight. And um, my mom's sister had a little kid at the time. Her daughter was very little. So she was in that habit that parents do of spelling things they don't want a little kid to, mm-hmm. to know. But I was eight, so I could spell. And they were talking in the front seat of a car, my mom and her sister, about my weight, and I was in the back seat. Listen, I mean, it was like a yeah. conversation about me in front of me, and my aunt said something. Like, you know, well, you can't have her eating this or that. You don't want her to get fat. And I was like, I know what that spells. You know, it's <laughs> so
0: condescending. Oh God,
1: yeah, just and it was it was the eighties, and we did not know to not talk about our bodies that way. As a society, like women were not telling each other.
0: They thought they were being helpful.
1: Exactly. It was positive to be healthy and thin and not overeat. And they
0: probably didn't realize that there were emotions connected to overeating.
1: Absolutely. And they all struggled with their weight and kept their weight down, you know, succeeded, quote unquote, in being thin. It was a big... um, Pardon. Why can't she keep
0: the monster in the dungeon like we do?
1: Exactly. Exactly. But then, you know, they all like would buy bags of whatever candy they loved and go crazy on. And I was just, ga- I would gain weight. They didn't gain weight. I gained weight. You know, I had a different. You sometimes
0: wonder if they weren't bulimic. Who knows? Yeah. There
1: was definitely disordered relationships with food. How long absolutely.
0: were their uh, index finger fingernails? <laughs>
1: I never noticed, but you never know. So, yeah, I mean, if, I don't think it was anorexia or bulimia, but it was disordered okay. relating to food for sure. A lot of, you know, control, just a lot of discussion about it. And years later, um, that same aunt would tell her daughter, who was older than probably 18 at the time, oh, you just ate that whole eclair. Look how your gut is sticking out now wow just like I mean that's just like abuse you know but we didn't call it abuse then in the 80s it was like well you can't get fat it wasn't like we it wasn't like on the internet or in a magazine that, that was
0: considered in in their mind guiding exactly guiding your child yeah
1: it just wasn't a time of like self-help language
0: you know and and I would hope that as we evolve as a culture and learn to you know learn more about expressing emotion, that those parents would, instead of criticizing that kid's weight, sit them down, don't talk about their weight, and just ask them about what they're going through, and you know, maybe even a sh- you know, share uh, a snippet from your life when you were a teenager, and say, you know, I went through a lot of anxiety, and what whatever it takes to help that kid feel at ease to open up emotionally, but you know, there's also that track record that parent has with that kid if there's you can't just switch from being super critical to now I'd like you to open up to me because you may fear that's going to be used against you so man it's my heart goes out to parents that that don't know what to do or they see their kid sliding into a bad area and there's already been damage done I mean, what would you recommend for a for a parent who finds themselves suddenly becoming aware? Do you apologize to your kid for the way you've talked about it right. in the past? Do you go to counseling together? What if that kid doesn't want to talk about it? If they're already on a certain level unsafe to you?
1: Yeah. Uh, man. Well, you know, it's funny. I've done a ton of reading and research and just like exploration about the subject my whole life because... I lost a lot of that weight um, in my early 20s and have battled and continue to battle with that relationship, trying to find a healthy place to put the idea of food and what that means and, you know, how to regulate it. And a lot of the reading that I have done, says that the best way to parent a kid in terms of their food is by example, and by not really calling a ton of attention to it. Because even if we're talking about don't overeat or you need to eat more, regardless of what the perspective is, there doesn't need to be this constant focus, this constant conversation on food. It's not normal.
0: And if you're going to focus on food, Focus on nutrition, right? Focus on the fact that, you know, we need to eat vegetables, we need to, we can't have just a plate full of carbs, right? Forget about the fact that what it does to your weight, you know, focus on the fact that that's just a huge jolt of sugar that stresses out your adrenal glands.
1: Yeah, exactly. You're
0: not getting the vitamins you need, etc, etc. It
1: might be better to focus on like, how does it make you feel after you eat something healthy? like. You know that that sort of conversation, but they say that you know what, after infancy, a child is going to model their eating after their parent. So regardless of what you're saying, it's the example. And the example in my world was control, de- deprivation, indulgence is negative. Oh ha ha ha! We're oh my goodness, we're having too much we're of this. We're being naughty, exactly. Which yes. I just cannot stand. You know, if you work in an office and someone brings in like. Peanut butter cups. Oh, who brought them in? The terrible, you know, it's just like, golly, like, can we please? It's more offensive
0: to me comedically than it is. (laughs) is.
1: The peanut butter cup culprit. Who's the devil? Exactly. Who's got horns on? Exactly. Get them away from me. You have to have one. You know, just that weird, like, so fucked up. But I also think that unless a kid has, like, diabetes or is going to die from being obese, you should probably just shut the fuck up. And, like, let them grow out of it. Lead by example.
0: Nurture them emotionally. Nurture
1: them emotionally. And, like, overlook what you might think are 30 extra pounds. The kid's not going to die. Like, the doctor will tell you if they're about to die. And maybe I'm being too general. But, like, unless you're an adult with a serious weight problem, I think it's more about loving them through anything than commenting on and judging anything related to their appearance because that is so difficult they're struggling with it
0: on their own
1: exactly and they don't need you forming an opinion that you shove down their throats you know and the other
0: thing I've heard mentioned too is the lavishing physical praise on a child can also be damaging because then that reinforces in their mind that oh my physical appearance is the most important thing about me
1: exactly exactly and
0: I never I never understood that in my relationship with my mom, why it made me so uncomfortable. Because I would think to myself, you know, I'm lucky that that my mom compliments me, but I've always felt just exposed around her. Right. And just like I want to cover up. And I've heard so many people in surveys and emails share it since then. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's a fucking thing. That's not me just being a sensitive, you know, whatever. Sure. So I, I, I think that's an important thing for, for parents to to understand. Yeah, is is it's the amount of it's not only the way you express it, but how much emphasis you put on it, good or bad.
1: Exactly, and you can trust that that kid thinks about their body. Okay, oh, yeah. like alone, you it's know, not like you they don't haven't need looked to, in the exactly. mirror and found flaws. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like you don't need to like fill up that cup because they are doing it all by themselves. I mean, that's the world we live in. You know, you can't yeah. walk down the street without being inundated with how you should think and feel. And there's no way that a 10-year-old kid isn't absorbing yeah. that. You know, and save the criticism for, you know, can
0: we not chew with our mouth open? Exactly. You know, that's a that's a thing where I think it's... Exactly. Things like that.
1: Yeah, be polite, clear your plate yeah. after dinner, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. yeah it's it's... And it, I wasn't the only member of my extended family that dealt with that other... Um, cousins because I don't have any siblings but other cousins who I'm very close to younger than I am had the same issue just like a a, a natural female weight gain around 16 17
0: especially college
1: exactly and the family just gets obsessed and it ruined relationships
0: well it's easier to look at what's wrong with you than to look at what's wrong with me
1: that's right and I think too maybe it's just my family but there seem to be if you are overweight there's definitely something wrong there, you know what I mean? It couldn't be you're just overweight and also fine. Otherwise, mm-hmm. this has to be a symptom of a greater problem. Instead of just there's a lot of junk food around. It's hard to be a kid. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. why does it have to indicate like psychosis or like. Talk about some positive moments. I feel like I
0: I, I don't touch on this enough, in, you know, because we always talk about what what was wrong in the childhood. And so often there was so much right, right next to what was yeah. wrong and it makes us think that like we're a terrible person we're throwing a relative under the bus by talking about the negative things um and i think it's important to to talk about the positive things as well to understand how complex um people are in our relationships with yeah them. well so that, talk you about know, some, some great moments that s- stick out
1: that's actually something that i have learned by listening to this show is this idea that people are complicated that there's no good and evil it's not that someone if someone has hurt someone or molested them that it doesn't mean that they're evil they're complicated and you know i don't have that sort of like dark history to that degree but there's a ton of complicated stuff that's that are all that all was born out of uh, a person that i really truly liked and enjoyed and had a great time with um talking about your mom my mom is awesome. She's a sweet, Was fun, that who you were
0: referencing when you said that, or who were who um, you talking about?
1: Probably more extended family. Okay. Yeah. I have, like, this empathy bank for my mom, um, you know, and that I definitely dealt with in therapy for sure. But, you know, she was a kid, and I, it wasn't something I've, like, come to learn now. I knew it always. Yeah. I'm, I was living with a child, essentially, with two kids in a house, like trying to make it work. And she had an authority about her for sure. But I just have a just a, so much empathy for her because I just can't even imagine just this, the time that it was, the situation that she was in. The shame she had. Oh, absolutely. Baby of the family, black sheep, and never like and always the baby and the black sheep never really got a leg up. And if I was criticized, she was even more criticized and you know? probably
0: she felt that you were an extension of her. And now she had two asses. She needed to cover
1: exactly from criticism, exactly. And, or two asses to save depending on what point in her own development she was in. Cause she started to figure out, wow, there's a lot of overbearingness. There's a lot of criticism as she got older. And I saw her go through that. Did She get help. She went to therapy for a little while in her thirties. Um, She doesn't seem to be someone who's really dealt with depression, battled it. It just doesn't seem to have been a reality. She has other issues, I think. Um, But she is a really proactive person, exercises a lot, eats well, a seeker kind of, you know. Mm -hmm. She's a teacher and a school counselor. So it's just like on her radar to read and learn. And we've come to a healing place as I got older and after I sort of had my like – rock bottom nightmare where we cleaned up a lot of what i felt like she contributed to that and it was almost the easiest did
0: you bring it up or did she
1: we both did i think there was a so she
0: didn't fight it she didn't no. deny it.
1: oh my god she was like an open book about it. she will come to me and apologize often
0: <laughs> i hope i hope parents really soak that in yeah so that they know that nothing is irreparable if you are willing to be open minded and not be super defensive. Yeah.
1: Some of the most healing experiences I've had have been from feeling an understanding and an empathy from her that I was longing for and asking for it and getting it when I didn't think she would do it. If I you know what I mean when I wasn't sure how it would play out. But she's incredible, wonderful, fun like open minded, liberal, cool lady you know she's loves to travel and has really given me that um bug and she is like a lover of life she's like uh the kind of person who if there's like a beautiful sunset it's like oh my god let's pull over look at the sunset so she's present very present very present um sometimes too present so there's that which i can relate to in your story of there not always being a boundary Definitely wasn't a, anything sexual at all, but it was like, don't get in a car for too long because an hour in. Listen, um, I wanted to bring something, you know, just like real personal question. And as I've gotten older, that's gotten less, but there's a lot of that in my family. It's not just my mom. There's a lot of, this isn't your business. How are you suddenly asking me, you know? I I can't think of an example, but just an incredibly personal question or why are, why do you, why is this your business? Like what I decide to do about XYZ or whatever Mm -hmm. the case might be. Um, but just to answer your question about positivity, my grandparents were also a hugely positive influence in a lot of ways, despite realizing now that some of the dysfunction in my family couldn't not have come from them or from their history. But my grandma is just this like great still alive and kicking just hung out with them not long ago. She's a blast. She's 82 and like, funny and nuts and, and uh, legally blind. So she has this crazy disability that affects everything for better and worse. And
0: is her nickname Mrs. Magoo?
1: <laughs> it should be. It should <laughs> be. We call her old blind lady all the time. Yeah. um you she's say just it to like, her? Oh, or- yeah, oh, yeah. She loves it. She loves yeah. it. And my grandparents have this incredible marriage. You know, they love each other and they hate each other and it's a blast. And they just show us, you know, such a... uh positive way to to love someone even when you can't stand them even when you're with them constantly and so there was a lot I have great aunts and uncles who are fun and my cousins who are like my siblings um, have probably saved my life honestly just because I feel a connection that isn't about being judged Um, and never what they were never you know they were children so they were never judgmental there was only empathy and that in my darkest moments when I feel the most alone and the most isolated is one of the things that keeps me connected to Earth is that I have these four amazing women who um, are all sisters themselves, my mom's brother's children, and they're just crazy and fun and loving and, like, each one couldn't be more different from the next, and I just, like...
0: If they were here right now, what what would you say to them?
1: Oh, my God. Um... That they're just the only people I ever want to hang out with. That I just couldn't be more grateful for having built-in friendships that have never deserted me. And that I know will never desert me. Um, And that I just wish we could just spend every day together. I wish we all lived in the same place and could be together all the time. Um, But it's strange because I have this dichotomy where I was an only child. So that... Loving reality was going on across town four siblings living in their house together, and, did you
0: want to live there?
1: Oh, big time, I wanted to be one of them, and they made me one of them, except then I wasn't you know i you knew I knew that i wasn't. I had to go home at the end of the night or go home at the end of the week or at the end of the summer vacation. They would go on a family trip to Florida, and there would be photos and stories, and I wasn't on that trip. It was a nuclear family trip, understandably. But it was just me and my mom and, like, whoever she was married to for that chunk of time. And that was hard. So I have this bizarre... It was probably why I am such an introverted isolationist and can be a performer. is because I have this blast with being a public person some of the time. And I would
0: imagine being a part of an ensemble. Yeah, yeah. There are a few... Quote unquote, families more intense than an improv troupe. Oh my because God. Because improv is such an intimate give and take. It's. It's as close to sex as sex. <laughs> yeah. There's nights it can be, Ugh, that wasn't so good. And there's nights right. where it's like, that was fucking mind blowing. And yeah. I'm so glad I got to share that with other people. And you realize it was not just about you. It was like something greater than you was passing through all of you at yeah. the same time. And you all just rode the wave.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. The, uh, the group I'm involved with, which, uh, the, I've done a lot of group-type stuff uh, over the years of performing, but the main group that I spend my time with is actually a sketch group, and it's we've been together for 10 years this November. And it's so much like a family that people are in therapy over it. I mean, I'm not even kidding. It's like all of our shit is just Mm -hmm. right at the surface. It's a miracle that we still see each other, that we can still stand to be around each other. But everyone is bringing their strengths and weaknesses from their own families into it. And a lot of people have a strong family unit. Not everyone in it has a broken family. It's like half and half. Some people mm-hmm. are from a mess and some people have a really strong family unit. So it works somehow. But oh, it's just like some days I just wish that I never had to do it again Because I already have a family and I don't necessarily need to like redo this again with this other family. But it's, you know, for better and worse, for sure.
0: What was the homeless thing about? I know it was very minor uh, in New York, but I'm uh, I have a kind of a unhealthy fascination with with homelessness, because I think a part of me and I used to do a bit about this on stage that a part of me has always been jealous that somebody um about the freedom yeah. of not having to get up, not having to pay rent. Um and honestly I sometimes think that if it weren't for the hygiene yeah. <laughs> and, and and the lack of safety of being homeless, there's something about just kicking around on the street all day laying on a bench, mm-hmm. getting drunk, if you yeah. feel like getting drunk. Uh, and I know I, what I'm saying on many levels is offensive and, <laughs> and minimizing the horror of being homeless, but that's that was always the kind of the sick fantasy right, a that I had. So I have a... Um, Just a curiosity about it. So tell me about your park bench.
1: Um, I can relate to that because I've had this dream forever of like spending my days finding homeless people to just sit down and talk to them. I want to know every tell me everything that led you here. Um, It's not so much the freedom that I see them having. It's that I I want to know the story because nobody was like, exactly. And it's probably a pretty relatable story. You know, it's probably not some crazy thing that you can't imagine going through. And I'm sure there's a
0: 99.9% chance there's an addiction or a mental illness or unhealed trauma.
1: That's right. Absolutely. So basically what happened was that I dropped out of college and I moved home to Chicagoland for a brief period of time. And then I moved back to New York really Sort of Ill, an ill conceived plan um, with this gay boyfriend. Mm-hmm. On again, off again, gay. On again, off again, boyfriend. Did on you again, travel off again, gay. Back
0: to New York on a gay pride f- parade float.
1: <laughs> it might as well have been. I think we listened to a lot of Mama Mia in the Car, so it might as well have been. <laughs> um, so anyway, we were living in this incredibly toxic codependent relationship. He was. Just as fucked up as I was for his own reasons. And we were staying with a friend. Uh, She had a boyfriend there and another friend there. So it was a small New York City apartment with five people in it. And all my good friends were graduating from college. And I was, I had just dropped out and was like living this other world. But I would go see them. You know, I
0: can't imagine how left behind oh you must have felt. God, it was the that worst. That must have just given you a knot in your stomach. It was
1: disgusting. I hated it. And they hated me for it. You know, I was just... Are you sure they uh, hated Well, you? what I mean is, it wasn't like a time and This was like in 2000, so this wasn't a time when... I guess I should have asked, why would
0: they have hated you for it?
1: I don't think that the world was like, um, was empathetic to mental illness at the time. I see. And I've been there myself. I've seen a friend suffering, watching her crying at some public event, being like, what the fuck is the matter with you? You know, when it's just like a switch to flip to be like oh you have a mental illness <laughs> that's why you're crying hysterically in public so it was you're that not
0: doing it for attention
1: exactly and it was just like my own peers it was we were a little family at the time you know it was like these people it, it, that you're in school with we might as well have been seniors in high school it, you know seniors in college it was essentially the same level of irresponsibility and and impulsiveness and just hanging out doing drugs like living they were graduating And so it wasn't like we were all adults. And it was like I was like the, you know, the the loose wire in in the mix. Were you
0: a downer to them? Oh, I'm sure. I was obese.
1: I was just huge. I had maybe two outfits that would fit me. I was... I had been an acting student at NYU. I was like a good kid, quote unquote. And here I was just like a mess. All I wanted to do was get high. All I wanted to do was nothing. I didn't want to do anything. And they were sort of in that party mode themselves because it was like school was ending. So I could fit in. And like one drug user doesn't want to ask another drug user, why are you here using drugs? (laughs) Like we're just trying to party, right? Mm -hmm. But like they were graduating and having parties and planning their next move. And I was just like fat and miserable and unemployed. And I dropped out of school because I was failing. And just like in this weird toxic thing with a guy that everybody knew was gay. And so it was like, No one was like...
0: That's a lot of fodder. It was awful. For for if they they want to get catty and backstabby, which theater students... Exactly. Especially can be, because they're just starting to deal with their own shit, if at all. Right. And I remember some of the... I was a theater student, and I remember there was a group of girls who, mostly behind her back... Just talk shit about this overweight girl, and you know they—they they called her not to her face, but they called her job at the hut. Wow. And I just remember feeling like, wow, even in high school, that would have been like catty and yeah. over the line. But you know, you forget at the time that it's scary being a theater student because you know when you graduate. You're kind of fucked on a lot of levels, because like, how am I going to make money? Yeah. And while there's also this beautiful community of being creative and doing a play with people, um, everybody, in many ways, you're kind of waiting to go off to the real world war, right? You know, war, the real world, whatever, whatever you want to call it, and you don't have a lot of. Ammunition.
1: Right, exactly. And nobody was going to go be a finance consultant or walk into a job to make money. So everybody had their own stress. And I attracted narcissists and people who would be catty. Those were my friends. Like I'm sure I could have found people who would have been loving and receptive, but those weren't the people that I hung out with.
0: Now that that strikes me as odd, because you had this beautiful relationship with your cousins, mm-hmm. so you know what it felt like to be intimate and seen yeah. and respected. Why do you think you would have settled for less? Was it just there weren't quality relationships more available? Did you feel like that's what you deserve because you had you know sunk right in your personal life? Uh, why, why well, do you the think cousins is-
1: actually wasn't. We were close when we were kids, but I was three years older than the oldest one, and they were just at a different point in their lives. So we didn't become close, close friends with a deep trust in each other until we were much older. Oh, okay. So they were almost like kids to me when I went off to college. I see. And my relationships that were definitive and defining were the ones that were there and way too critical and conditional and required way too much of me that I was never going to be able to give. And then there were also the defining relationships that just weren't there. Like my dad just wasn't there.
0: So then those relationships in college felt like, oh, this is what a relationship is. This feels familiar. This must be right. This must be right for me.
1: Exactly. And I always, I mean, just like from high school, my first, you know, relationships, friendships, uh, romantic relationships were all fucked up. Like from day one, the first... Like best close friend I had as like like post puberty was just began the cycle of this toxic codependent, you know, that co-narcissism article that you often talk about. So profound. Incredible. Did that just make your jaw drop? Oh, that's exactly me. That's exactly me.
0: It's it's written by Alan Rappaport, and you can Google it. There's a PDF on his website, and uh, it's called Co-Narcissism. Read it. It's only about five pages long, but read it.
1: It's incredible. Yeah. And it just like is so – I'm like, oh, yeah, well, that's exactly what – and I don't know who the narcissist was. I don't know who I was being a co-narcissist to. It maybe was everyone. My aunt, my uncle, my dad who wasn't there – Um, A detail that I didn't mention is that when I was eight, my dad became a born-again Christian, and it ruined our relationship for sure. Um, And so that was a piece of it that – a piece of my life also that was about somebody else. You know, there was a loss that I – I felt like he died almost. He was like a cool, fun – edgy guy that liked to laugh and was a musician. And then it just like overnight, you know, and he has his own major issues that he's always battled. And it was just like overnight, he became a different person. And I vividly remember he become less tolerant. He became Yeah, he became um, weirdly pious. You know, we'd be in Spencer gifts at the mall and suddenly a funny butt joke t-shirt that would have made him laugh a month before was inappropriate and we had to hurry out of there and i didn't see him a lot but when i did it was it was bizarre it was so bizarre and i thought he was like a fun cool guy and it just really it required me at age eight to decide whether or not i believed in god because here i was confronted with
0: his version of god which is such a yeah such a misuse of power and judgment yeah and
1: and just like and all of his own issues got folded into that. So I vividly remember my mom on the phone with him. You know, he lived somewhere else and he must have called to ask her if he could bring me into this. And I remember her. She never would ask me to go in the other room when she was on the phone, but this time she did. And of course, so I listened at the door and she said, uh, no, Peter, you can't, no, you cannot. When she's 18, she can decide, but I don't want you, if she when she comes to visit, I don't want you, like, exposing her to it. You can let her know what you're doing, but, like, come on, you know, this is not something I'm interested in. We I was raised Catholic, but it was Catholic light. We weren't really, like, doing anything religious.
0: You enjoyed meat on Friday. You, <laughs> exactly. you specifically said, let's go get ribs. That's
1: right. Put pepperoni on that cheese yeah. pizza. <laughs> so I went to visit him, and he basically just completely... Uh, ignored everything she said. Of course. I was indoctrinated to the nth degree. There, We would go to these long, two-hour long church services and all the other children would go to a children's section but because I was only visiting him for this one week, he would make me sit in with the adults and it was just oh. a violation. It really was. I hated being there. his He married this woman who had three children and they were all so into this church. I just couldn't And I was eight, you know, and so he would put me in the car and drive me around, and we used to drive around and sing songs and tell jokes and tell stories and play games, and now he would just preach about Jesus.
0: I I could do five, ten-hour shows in a row where I read nothing and aired nothing but the abuse that people suffered at the hands of religiosity. It uh, is—I can't even— almost every day i get an email from somebody where religion was used um abusively wow. against them um <laughs> including being fucked by preachers sure um you know on the, the the you know the stereotypical ones but it um it is its own particular form of abandonment and and abuse and i do get some emails from people where um Religion was a positive experience, and there's a structure in their life, but I would say they are probably less than 1% of the emails that I that I get.
1: Yeah. I can Around only, religion. Right. I can yeah. only imagine. I mean, I wish I knew more people who had... I wish I could talk yes. to more people who had And this. I believe in God. Yeah. And God <laughs> right,
0: right. has had my... Higher power what has saved my life. Right. So it's not that I don't believe.
1: Right, right, right. I
0: believe. Right. But I also believe that's my own fucking thing. Right. And not for me to try to force on you.
1: Right, right. Well, and like I remember... um it caused me to sort of grow at age eight to suddenly grow all these critical thinking skills. Well, do you believe in God? He would ask me. And it's like an eight year old doesn't have it. I don't even know what that I means. I believe in
0: you shutting the fuck up. Exactly. That's what I believe in most strongly right exactly. now. Exactly. And that's what I believe my God would want yeah, is for I you believe to fucking in zip it.
1: Into that McDonald's and getting a Happy Meal and like yeah. letting me play with it. And I'm a child and you're a grown up. So let's move on. But so anyway, he would just preach and preach and preach. And he finally talked me into letting him send me a children's Bible. He said, like, let me do this, let me do this. And finally I was like, fine, great, okay, fine, send it to me, fine. And it never came in the mail. And, like, I, it was like a piece of myself that I had given away to be like, okay, send it to me, I'll flip through it. And, like, he didn't send it. So it was just like that, you know, he was a flake in his own way. And that was another version of narcissism that I had been dealing with in childhood that I wasn't even aware of. But by the time I got into college, I was just attracting all of these people who had a ton of issues and I loved it. And that I went just Because it feels first. edgy.
0: It feels... Yeah.
1: And, you know,
0: there's also something comforting about being around people that are fucked up but they're but they i think there's gotta be like a side to them that is seeking that that is loving that isn't abusive yeah um but it's when when you haven't even begun to deal with your own shit you don't recognize it you're just like something about it feels kind of Sickly comforting.
1: Exactly. And I can't say that if the tables had been turned and I had been a seemingly well person with a person who was obviously falling apart in our midst, that I wouldn't have attacked her, too, behind her yeah. back or passive-aggressively to her face. So so it was a terrible time living uh, in this tiny apartment, um, and everyone else I knew going through something positive and transformative in me being left behind and this terrible toxic relationship that I was in. Um, and we got into a really heated argument one night at like three AM and he started packing bags to call his mom to have her fly him home at four o'clock in the morning, which was like a tactic he pulled off and the threat of leaving. And I had like a sec a momentary, a second of a blackout, and I punched him and I'd never I've never done anything like that before or since i had I'd no idea where in the face I'm. yeah, in the mouth he says it was twice I think it was once could have been twice um he retaliated for probably like half an hour um punched you back we went into the bathroom for so he like dragged me into the bathroom and like held my face in the mirror. Because his mouth was bleeding and he was like, look at what you did, kind of a thing. And then we just, he did everything but punch me back in the bathroom for like a half an hour, pulling my hair, smacking me, just like any, like, it was surreal. It's like a dream state to even think about it. He was abused as a kid. His dad was abusive, physically abusive. So he had like a lot of rage And it wasn't like I punched him and kept going. I punched him and it, like, shocked me. I'm such a pacifist in that way. I just never – I keep it all inside. I never – you know, part of why it's so difficult for me to, like, imagine everyone knowing everything is because I try and keep it all protected. So it was like this weird, like, tiny, like, pinprick of steam that came out. And then almost right back in, almost like I knew instantly what I had done and how damaging this was about to be because he was – Probably even more on the razor's edge of losing his mind. I'm
0: sure you triggered PTSD. Absolutely. So you understand, you know, not that domestic abuse is ever okay, even if it's in retaliation. But you understand.
1: Oh yeah, it was. I, I. It was one of the hardest things to ever reconcile about myself because when you say that to someone, I punched a person. Like that means something. That means a few things. Not everyone has done that, and. I don't want it to mean those things, but I own that it happened, you know? So it was like this realization, this return to reality, you know? And a couple days later, I got kicked out of that apartment. Um, The girl who sort of was on the lease, the girl whose apartment it was, was going through her own difficult time. She was a little bit older. She was in therapy, and she just didn't really know how to handle it, I don't think, and you know, called me and told me some fibs and kind of manipulated the situation and basically, like, said, come meet me, I want to talk, and let's have coffee, and I think I'm going to ask and,
0: him to move out. And bring your stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Put your stuff in
0: a duffel bag. Yeah. <laughs> we, there's no seats there. We need something to sit down right, on.
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. So she, like, kind of manipulated me over to the apartment, and there everything was, all my things in plastic bags. So I took them out to my car and she told me that she thought I was crazy and that I needed to be locked up and she couldn't be my friend anymore and that she was going to have him stay and that I had to go. And it was bizarre, it was hard. It was I literally looked I literally looked around to see if there was a hidden camera because it was one of those things where I was like this is not happening. You know, I I knew that I had done something big, but I didn't think I had done something that was this big. But it was, that was the reaction, you know? And I get it. I get it. Um,
0: in hindsight, you get it.
1: In hindsight, I understand why the response was like, we have a violent problem in our midst. Um, I wish so much that there had been more compassion and more connection to what was really happening. You know what I mean? But there wasn't. And that is what it is. And it certainly inspired a change in my world. Um So I left and I had friends, you know, whose couches I would stay on from time to time. And she sent an email that that woman sent an email to uh, a bunch of mutual friends sort of being like, don't let her stay at your house because she's going to hurt you and sent an email to my mom. And and that was one of the times when my mom shocked me with her ability to love me unconditionally. Um, I remember being so scared to call her afterwards because I, again, tried to keep everything like okay, and this was suddenly not okay, and there were like repercussions that were real, and...
0: The rug you were sweeping it under was getting lumpy.
1: Exactly, and you could <laughs> see it. And I remember talking on the phone with her and sort of... She she had gotten this email from the girl, and and... She's not the kind of mom that would get that and be right on that person's side. Oh, my God, what's going on? We've got, you know, she was took it with a grain of salt. She's a high school teacher. So it was sort of like, okay, like there's two sides. It's find out, which I really appreciated. And we finally talked on the phone. I was so nervous to talk to her, told her the whole long, elaborate, you know, this and then this and then this and then this happened. And I remember the first thing that she said to me was, you're not crazy. And you don't need to be locked up and you're gonna be fine. What and, that feel like Oh my god, it was I know I cried. I know I was just it felt like the biggest like breath of the biggest release of a sigh of my life before or since. It was like I was finding out if I was gonna be sentenced to death or sentenced to prison. And it was just prison. And I was like, thank God. And, you know, she was like, do you want to come home? Do your grandfather wants to drive out there and get you? And I just wanted to, I didn't want to go home. I was super depressed. I just needed to, I needed to like, move forward. She said, I'm not going to send you any money. um, If you want to go to therapy, because I was young enough that I was still on her health insurance. If you want to go to therapy, I'll pay for that, but I'll send the money to the therapist. And so I took her up on that and started seeing a therapist. Um, But during that time, the couches ran out and I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. I didn't have um, a good enough reason to go home to Chicago. And so I just kind of stuck it out in New York. I don't know if that was the right decision or not um and when the couches ran out, I was- I had this car, and that's where all my stuff was was in this car and already been broken into once, so like a lot of my belongings had been stolen out of it, and that was <laughs> crazy um but like wh- okay um and then a friend of mine moved out of their apartment and I found uh a few empty apartments in that building to just, like, squat in, basically, until I got caught. And one day I came back to this apartment that I had, like, been sleeping on this, like, bare mattress inside this abandoned apartment, and the door was locked. The doorman had figured out that someone was coming in and out, and I had a bunch of stuff in there still, and so I had to move out of there. And I honestly can't remember where I went after that I may have slept in the car but another time the car was broken into and the cops came and they found my therapist's card in the back of the car and called her thinking it was her and I had been keeping from her that I wasn't living anywhere and so she got really freaked out and I happened to have a session with her later that day. And so when I showed up, she was like, what is going on? And I sort of explained, you know, I'm not really staying anywhere. And my car was parked in a weird spot and this and that. And she was sort of like, you're homeless. And I didn't characterize it that way, but I was. I mean, I didn't have a place I was living or a bed. And...
0: It's amazing, the denial. You were squatting and you couldn't say, I was homeless. I guess you thought, yeah. well, I have a home. It's yeah. not ideal. Someone else's
1: home. Yeah. <laughs> I. Well, and you know what's so wild about it is I felt such a sense of peace in that abandoned apartment because I was by myself and the toxic nightmare that was this relationship with this guy ended, although terribly, the relief of not being in that toxic daily I mean we were living on top of each other that toxic daily nightmare it all I could have been anywhere I was so grateful to be out from under the emotional burden so it was like almost like the me punching him was like my subconscious like get the fuck out of this mess what are you doing I was ruining my life you know and so it was a lot of alone time that I hadn't had for years and that I was really craving and I was doing a lot of writing and I would smoke pot and just like hang out and it felt safe. So I didn't... Did
0: you have any electricity? No. So how, at night, would you just go to bed when it got dark or would you light candles or what would you maybe
1: do? I think can- maybe a candle. I would go to bed when it got dark. It was a big window. It was the summertime, so it took a long time to get dark. Oh, nice.
0: When you would light candles, would Stevie Nicks come through wearing a shawl <laughs> twirling?
1: Probably.
0: Old reference. <laughs> Paul is a hundred. Uh. I'm ashamed, but also kind of it. proud because I love squeezing Stevie Nicks <laughs> twirling in a shawl joke wherever possible. You do it so well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it was, you know, it was just awful. That's
0: that's. That's kind of uh, as as we call it on the podcast, awfulsome.
1: Well, yes, exactly, exactly. It was. Um, it's just one. You know, it's one of those things. Who? It's one of those things. I just have that detail. It's you know? kind
0: of like an uh, an isolator, underachievers, wet dream. <laughs> <laughs> no rent. Yes. You know, it's no
1: one telling me what to do. Yeah, I was. Yeah.
0: Take the the hygiene away, and it's like, it's pretty sweet.
1: Yeah, exactly. So sometimes I see homeless people, and I think maybe this is better than where you came from. Toxicity. Yeah.
0: Is there other option?
1: It's like sometimes it is a choice for a reason, because it's like that or... And, you know, it's not like I was being, like, beaten or anything, but for me it was... A horrible. I was a I felt like a good kid and I just couldn't. It was the worst reality, you know. And I I one of the nights staying at an apart, a friend's apartment on his couch, a couple nights after this punch scenario happened, I took stock and realized that I had really driven myself off a cliff. I mean, I was obese. I had dropped out of acting school which had been my dream to go to nyu had been my dream i didn't have a job i didn't have a dime to my name i mean i was in debt and i made this terrifying list like forcing myself to put it all down literally said lose weight graduate college get out of debt get a job like as though i was going to check items off this fucking list
0: tomorrow i'll graduate
1: exactly By Tuesday, I'll weigh 100
0: pounds less. Right,
1: exactly. But looking at it made me, I mean, it was like all right there. And I'll never forget like the hysterical, just gut-wrenching sob, seeing what I had done to my otherwise promising future on this fucking piece of paper and realizing like this is not a joke. This isn't like a daydream. Like this is all shit that has to be dealt with. And ultimately dealing with it over five years. Thank God you had a therapist. Oh, my God, she saved my whole life. Talk about
0: life. that. Talk about the what you got from having a therapist to go to.
1: Um, well, I was going twice a week in the beginning. She was like, I think you need to come here twice a week. I don't know why she didn't put me on meds right away. I actually wasn't on, didn't get put on an antidepressant until like seven years later. But she, it was, uh, it was. Well, you would
0: have had to have seen a doctor or a psychiatrist to get it prescribed yes you know therapists can't
1: yes exactly you know. but she didn't seem to suggest that she didn't I see. yeah um and i asked her about it later years later like why and she said she thought that we could get a lot of work done with talk therapy but i i like the meds i prefer to be on the meds mm-hmm. um but it was just like she saved my life i mean it was the only thing i had to do was go to therapy twice a week in the beginning um i had nothing else I was telling someone all my secrets for the first time ever, deep, deep shame about everything, my weight, my just ridiculous marijuana habit, dropping out, flunking out of school, just like all these secrets that nobody knew. And it wasn't like she was suddenly this person that I just felt like wasn't going to judge me because I every adult I knew seemed to be judging me. But I would just like took a leap of faith. Like, well, if you do, fine. Like, I don't know you from anybody. I'm going to, I have to, you know, and I went in being like, all right, I got to lose a bunch of weight. I got to get off this pot. Like, I got to, she was like, all right, like, let's slow down. You know, yeah. like, how are you doing? Um, But she helped me ultimately get back into school and lose weight and get, you know, to a healthy place with my food and find a job and just took me through 10 years of healing. How did
0: she help you with some of those things? What are some of the concrete? And before you answer that question, what was it about her that you think helped you heal? What about her The qualities that she has or has as a therapist? Because a lot of people have, I should say some people have had bad experiences where there isn't the chemistry, where they don't where where it's just not a positive experience and they give it you know maybe a half dozen episodes maybe uh visits maybe (laughs) even maybe even a year yeah and
1: and it doesn't yeah
0: and and they don't feel anything moving forward and they still feel judged
1: i think it was more about me than it was about her i was desperate so it was like this was what was in front of me this was the meal that was served to me and i was ravenous I see, and i would have eaten anything you know that sort of i wanted to believe everything she told me i i in my mind, she was like a doctor of all doctors. I just bought into it, you know?
0: Was was there an emotional um, component to letting this stuff go? Or was it more just a uh, intellectual kind of, uh, here's what she says, I'm going to do yeah. it. But was, was there a feeling, a feeling felt by yes, her absolutely. that allowed the tears... And the other stuff to, yeah. to, to come up and out.
1: I didn't feel like I had a choice because backwards was I had already explored and forwards, even though it was unknown, was the only way out as far as I. And, you know, it was a blessing to some extent that these people cut me out of their lives because I didn't have anyone to go to. I and mean, it
0: forced I, you to take a hard look. At-
1: absolutely. And and that was excruciating at the time because I was desperate for more compassion, but she was just so willing to listen to me. And there was such, there was no judgment. I just had never experienced that before. I did did not know.
0: Did you find it phony at first? Was it hard to believe? Or did you feel like, oh, this is the truth? I've been waiting for this?
1: Yes. I felt like this is... you're lucky. Seriously. I mean, I was... It was like I had a cancer and this was the first person being like, oh, we can cut it out. You'll be all right. We'll cure it. And I was like, (laughs) she was the only person that didn't look. I was walking around the streets of New York City, obese, like probably dirty. I don't know. She was the only person in my world, family, friends, strangers that didn't look at me like, get the fuck away from me. I just felt like everybody didn't want anything. to. I felt like I had overstayed my welcome everywhere. And she made me feel like it was, I was a person. (laughs) And I remember her telling me, let's leave all this stuff that you're dealing with in this room. We'll put it over there. I'll keep it here till you come back. And that was obviously like a metaphor, but, and I was like, fuck that. What are you talking about? But it, it worked. Because suddenly my gigantic, overwhelming, lonely burden was shared. And she seemed to have an unending capacity to hold on to it for me. And I just, it was all I, it was literally all I had was this woman. And I stayed with her for 12 years, I think. I mean, until we left New York City, I was always still email with her today. I mean, she saved my life. Absolutely. I don't know what would have happened. I really don't. I don't. I don't know. So she also gave me perspective that I had never heard before. You know, like that voice teacher asking me the critical background question. It's like if you've only ever seen the color black, And the color white comes into the room, you might not notice. And it was just like someone repeating this perspective, this other perspective that maybe I wasn't inherently broken. Maybe I wasn't bad. Maybe I wasn't obese because I was bad. You know, maybe it was okay that I wanted to be a performer. Maybe it was cool that I was funny and creative. And I just had literally never heard any of that, not from family, not from friends. And it was like the first real relationship of my life almost. And it gave me a confidence to go into other relationships that were still going to be part of my life, like my relationship with my mom and to state my reality, you know. And to be, and to trust that that was going to be all right. And it was not going to be the end of the world if I said, Dad, I don't like when you talk about God, you know? And I did tell him that once a couple years after being in therapy, and he did hear that. And it's not as if that healed everything and suddenly I want to go to church with him. But it was like, I never had the voice to do that before therapy, ever. I didn't have a voice. I just did not have a voice, you know? And thinking about, The seminal moments in preparing to come here, a lot of them were examples of me, especially in childhood, choosing to mute myself, being confronted with a situation, knowing it felt wrong and deciding to not say anything, as opposed to saying, wait, what? I'm confused or this hurts. And it was a pattern because I had to be an adult. For the adult child I was living with, I had to keep it all in check. It was my responsibility to make sure everything was fine. And that if I did have a, a a if I did go off the deep end that no one would ever find out. And so I just didn't have a voice at all, except in my head, which was a maniac <laughs> which was a crazy voice.
0: Yeah, when you grow up in a really critical environment, you you know, the kind of a subliminal message is is that there's something wrong with you exactly and so you'd wind up doubting your own integrity your own sense of what the truth is and so how can you develop a voice if you think what's going to come out of your mouth is wrong right so why not just be quiet and roll with it and hope it ends as soon as possible exactly sweep it under the lumpy rug
1: yeah and i i probably would have done that forever had not had something not i was determined to never be found out
0: Man I love when somebody's life hits rock bottom and it's a touchstone for growth and change. It's I always say to to people who are in the middle of something terrible that this is probably the most beautiful gift you will ever receive in the most hideous wrapping paper. Absolutely. Just be patient with it. Just be patient with yourself, try to be nice to yourself and trust me. Yeah. Trust me on this. As long as you're trying to move forward and not staying in in self-pity right. and and seeing yourself as a victim who will never get better. And that doesn't mean you can't, you know, there's a difference between self-pity and self-compassion. Right. I think self-compassion um, means that, that you are going to move forward. You're not going to stay stuck. You're going to honor your feelings, but you're not going to... Um, Become cynical right. about your future.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Or be a hundred percent cynical about your future. Right. I think even if you're just five percent hopeful, you got that little pin pin of light yeah. um uh, at the end, that's that's enough.
1: Yeah. I was just reading these journals I kept during like the worst time just before I punched this kid was like just like a suicidal, depressive, really tragic time for me. And it's hard for me to read those things now, but I made myself do it the other day. And I wrote at some point after I got kicked out of the apartment that I felt this tiny, tiny ember, this tiny flicker of like a fire of strength in my belly. I just felt like a tiny remembrance of who I intrinsically was. And while I was reading it, in my nice apartment with my awesome husband in the other room dog beautiful life i put it down and looked around and i realized that that ember i f- now i just feel like a ball i feel like a ball of fire that's it's not in my belly it's like my whole self is now like a flame in a great way and it's incredible to see that
0: and i think it's important to mention too that you are almost completely broke <laughs> right now <laughs> Because I want people to understand that that this is not about stuff, Mm -mm. you know, and what happened with Robin Williams recently is a great example of stuff ain't going to save you.
1: That's right. And I will also say I don't feel by any means out of my issues at all. I take antidepressants. I laid around the house and did absolutely nothing all day. Yesterday, I struggle every single day. And I think that... I've learned over these 12 years and these instances like Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman, these people who I revered as artists for many years, watching them battle their own issues. I've really begun and honestly, listening to your show, I've begun to understand that my depression in my story was not circumstantial, that I always had a mental issue that was inflamed by certain issues but it's it would have been there and it would have always been there and it's still there and it's not going anywhere and you have
0: a responsibility to yourself and to those that who love you
1: absolutely
0: um, to do what you have the power to try to control or change
1: absolutely and that that experience i went through um with the punch and the homelessness is where i learned that because there was an inherent narcissism to my overwhelming myself and everyone with my shit and being unwilling to deal with it. I didn't think I had the ability to deal with it at the time. And I don't say narcissism in a judgmental way, but I was 100% self-focused. And I've since learned that...
0: Was it like you wanted to advertise your victimhood?
1: Well, I didn't know what... I didn't have anything else to advertise. And I wasn't going to go get help. But I definitely blamed everyone else for my problems.
0: Yeah, you know, I would... Suggest to anybody out there that is um you know letting it all hang out with friends um, if they suggest that you go get help um keep an open mind to it because um they're trying to help you. Right. Nobody wants to suggest for you to get help because it feels good for them to suggest that exactly that's your you went to them for help
1: right. you went to
0: them to open up. Let them open up to you. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you have to read between the lines a little bit because people aren't going to say, I'm terrified for you. You seem like you're a mess. Um, you're, most dra- people- you're
0: draining me, maybe. Exactly. This is our fifth conversation in a row. Exactly. It's been an hour long monologue on all your about part. You. All about right. you. Right.
1: Exactly. That's. Yeah. And I think the girl that kicked me out, that's where she was. I wish that she had handled it differently, but she didn't have the tools to do it and she couldn't deal. And I get it. I wouldn't be able to deal now if there was a depressed obese lunatic living would, in my yes. house. I would who, who didn't them, want to get help, I would avoid them. Yeah, exactly. I would avoid them. Exactly. And so it's like I for sure learned that I have to take a personal responsibility for my own mental health or I'm going to lose friends. I'm going to lose empathy because people have their own shit to deal with, you know? So but yes, I am broke. It's awful. It's very stressful. I've been in this position time and again. I've been completely comfortable and then broke, comfortable, broke, blah, blah, blah. Um, And that absolutely contributes to feeling depressed and overwhelmed. But I would feel that way no matter what the circumstances were. So it's a daily practice of being grateful for what I do have, forcing myself to list the things I'm grateful for. You know, two eyes, 10 fingers, even the super basic stuff, internet, like the stuff that you, I just take for granted all the time. And it's like, okay, so you can't go buy a new dress. It's okay. Um,
0: and you have a resiliency. Some Sometimes just getting help, just maybe getting on a med, just meditating, just changing one thing can give you some more resiliency. Struggling, but... You've got some momentum going forward. You, there's resiliency, and that may, that can be the difference between life and death. Having some resiliency yeah, in your life,
1: absolutely. And you know, that's the thing that my rock bottom experience really taught me was that I'm always gonna be okay. You know, I'm gonna make it to the other side. Because there are a lot of people that go through a rock bottom that didn't have the resources I had. Their mom isn't on the other end of the phone saying, I'll pay for therapy. Their grandfather isn't trying to drive out. It was like I was destitute by will, you know? Um, And not everybody has that luxury of getting to decide that they're going to really go into their rock bottom. You know, they're really going to dive right in. I Mm. knew inherently that I needed to, but it was a choice to some extent.
0: And some people, their path out takes years and years. And... uh I want to. I want to send a hug to any of those people who are like, I'm not going to see daylight. You know, this thing that's on my plate is going to be with me for the rest of my life, or is going to take years to yeah. get some traction on. Um, there, you can find. It's been my experience that happiness is elusive, but peace is very easy to access if I can just accept the things I don't have control over focus on the things I do and stay out of how things turn out because that's something I also don't have control over right. and just try to find people that I can be intimate with that there, there's a peace somebody said um, you know recovery from issues doesn't promise you peace from the storm it gives you a chance to have peace inside the storm
1: Mm, yes because the storm is always going to be there
0: in one form or another even if you're rich and famous the storm might be that everybody wants something from you you know yeah it might be that you've created a life that is too large and complicated that is now overwhelming you
1: right and you know i think Obviously, it almost goes without saying, but that's just why it's so important that we have more public conversations about mental illness, because almost everyone I know is going through their own version of emotional Me, challenges. Yeah,
0: even if it's not a medically yeah. diagnosable, it's still a battle Absolutely. in your head, and give weight to it. Absolutely. You know, the worst thing you can do is minimize uh, your angst. And, and say that this, I'm just going to ignore this thing, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I think I thought for years that I was making it all up. You know, that I was sad, but I could snap right out of it if I wanted to. And that just wasn't... I mean, here I am, you know, I'm 33 years old and I still deal with this. And I just... I, I'm not going to snap out of it. There's no snapping out of it. So it's just... uh the self-care thing, you know, and and constantly trying to let go of that shame uh, that I'm sick, you know, let go of that piece that feels ashamed.
0: One of the easiest tools that I've found to sometimes snap out of a funk is to ask myself, am I just in self-obsession right now because very often I am and right. there is a downward spiral to uh to self-obsession it can very easily be if not uh, reversed halted by taking an interest in others and saying how can i how can i help somebody else today how can i yeah. make the world a slightly better place and very often that's a real mood lifter for me and it puts my problems in perspective yeah. and so to anybody out there uh navel gazing can be gasoline on the fire that's right
1: for sure without a doubt you know i i that's exactly the state that I was in. Yeah.
0: Because there's a difference between self reflection and self obsession. Yeah. And it's hard to say exactly what that is, but right. there is a huge difference and one is incredibly um um life degrading and the other one is incredibly life invigorating. Yeah. Let's do some fears. Did you write down fears I or did, loves? Yes. Okay.
1: Let me grab them. I fear uh, passing my difficulty with others on to my children and not providing them with enough adult support in their lives because I have trouble keeping in touch with people.
0: I am afraid that I've deeply hurt people whose episodes I haven't aired, even though I warn them that every person I record, I warn that I can't promise their episode will ever air. And I record way more episodes than, than I air.
1: I fear finding a, uh, or I fear never finding a daily peace and spending the rest of my life battling a melancholy that ultimately kills me.
0: Well, this is kind of a silly one, but we had to cone one of our dogs because she's been chewing at her skin. Uh-huh. And she's very clunky with it and bumps into everything, and then it scares the shit out of her. And I have a fear that she's never going to get better in that cone because she'll, she'll like be afraid to even lay down with it because the cone might bump. Aww. And so she'll just stand there for like two hours and kind of whine. And I say to myself, well, she's going to get used to it and it's become less scary. Um, but I have the feeling she's so skittish that it's never going to. It's never going to be better when she has to have the cone on. Oh, that's kind of a silly one, but no,
1: yeah. that's a good one. That would give me anxiety. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> God. Um, I fear. Okay, here's a, here's one. I fear I am an addict who only experiences hedonic hedonic is that the word hedonic hedonism hedonic mm-hmm. happiness. Is that a thing?
0: I think so. It is now.
1: It is now. Uh, I fear I'm an addict who only experiences hedonic happiness as in and is incapable of feeling or even wanting to feel whatever the fuck the other kind of happiness is.
0: Wow, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, how, what are the uh, hedonistic things? Is it the the smoking of the weed?
1: Smoking weed and food, which I've come to an understanding with over the years, but I would say that's where it started.
0: Have you ruled out going to a support group if things become addictive?
1: Things are definitely addictive, and yeah. I have not ruled that out. But I'm sure you can relate that. That's a I don't want to.
0: I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't either. It was the last thing I thought. Oh, this is going to be like the worst of church with the worst of traffic school, <laughs> and it turns out it's the greatest tree fort I've, I've ever, I've ever been in. Yeah. I laugh harder and cry harder than my favorite movies um, at good meetings. Yeah. There are bad support groups, um, not the support group as a whole, but individual meetings where I'm like, oh, I'm never fucking going there again. There was no recovery in there. That was just a whining session of right. people with no, um, with no recovery, and I avoid those like the, the the plague. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to to tell somebody what is what is a good. Meeting And what's a what's a bad meeting? Right. But that's very normal uh, to not want to go. But I always tell people, give it go a half a dozen times and find out. Find out. Yeah. You'll never know. You'll never know. But, you know, is addicts prefer, and I say this all the time, the painful known to the promised, beautiful unknown. Right. Right. Um, Your turn? My turn? I can't remember. Your turn. My turn. I love having a guest like you that is uh, eloquent and goes deep and um, who I feel like Mm -hmm. I know by the end of their thing and and where I see their nerves ease. You know, it seems like your nerves eased about Five, ten minutes into it.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I love walking outside for the first time each day. And my senses are overwhelmed by smells and sounds and whatever the weather is. And everything feels possible for just a split second.
0: I love walking out at night from a building or my house. And when there's a little more humidity in the air than there normally is in the desert, It smells like the Midwest. It smells like a summer night in the Midwest. And I can feel emotions come up that only come up when I smell smells from my childhood. Mm,
1: I love that. Yes. I totally relate to that.
0: And they're not necessarily positive emotions. They can be kind of a melancholy. Um,
1: Yeah. A nostalgia.
0: A nostalgia. The one that actually came up for me, I left. I walked out of my friend's uh, house. A group of us had been playing poker, and we had a great time and laughed super hard. And I came out, and it smelled like a midwestern summer night, and it reminded me. It brought back really positive memories about experiencing um, a, of sexual discovery in high school on summer nights, mm. like laying out in the grass with a with a girl and hearing the crickets and you know maybe some mosquitoes yeah. are buzzing around and it's such a visceral feeling um but it's so attached to um that feeling of that excitement of experimentation right. as, a, as a as a young adult yeah I hate that I said a young adult because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it didn't feel like a kid was was appropriate but I <laughs> A young adult. I, I'd gone five minutes without second guessing myself. And I thought I was due.
1: That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, let's see. I love when everyone else around me is making me irritated and frustrated and sad, except for my husband. And we find each other as we pass each other in the apartment and we hug. And he says into my ear, at least we always have each other and everything melts away. And I feel seen and safe.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. Um, did we start out with loves or did we yeah no, we started, started out with loves we started right? out with fears oh we did yeah. and, and then we went to loves yeah okay I didn't notice the transition between fears and loves
1: you, oh, you started oh
0: it. I went right into the loves you did Ugh. I was
1: following suit <laughs> <Ugh>. that's
0: okay <laughs> it's alright that's okay I like loves <laughs> I love the first swig of a lemon-lime Gatorade. Mm. It just feels more quenching than anything in the world. Mm. It's just so... I can't not chug Gatorade. I can't sip Gatorade. Really? The yellow one.
1: Yeah. You have to, like, full chug. It's
0: so... It's so good. And I probably only drank it 20 times in my life. I don't know why I don't buy it and drink it. Maybe because it's got more sugar than I feel like I should I should have. Right. But every time I, I, I crack it open and take that drink, I'm like, this is like my favorite thing in the world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, yeah. I just live for those moments.
0: Yeah, like salty popcorn in a Gatorade. Yes. Oh, that's so good.
1: I've always wondered if it's like a fat girl thing that I find such pleasure from like, that first cookie that's just so good or like the first chip out of the bag fat girl thing it that's could
0: a, be though. that's a that's a, that's a <laughs> no because I'm not a fat girl and like I had a, a brownie Sunday last night after um, after dinner and I enjoyed everything Every fucking spoonful, but that, especially that first spoonful. I got some chocolate pecan brownie, some of their Madagascar vanilla ice cream, a little bit of whipped cream, and a little bit of caramel, and, mm. it, and it was, it was sex in a spoon. Oh my god!
1: Yeah, life is for those moments. It is. I have one more that relates. I love that first sip of iced coffee, which I have to have every single morning. It's so cool and refreshing and simple, and it just makes me feel so happy. Wish I could feel that way all day long. I
0: love the first sip of a of a black tea that has just a little bit of smoky flavor to it. Pete's Coffee, my favorite, my favorite mm. place, uh, has this one blend of tea called Russian Caravan, and it has just a little bit of smoke to it. And uh, I don't have it that often, but when I do, it feels like it feels like I'm taking care of myself. Like mm. I've given myself something kind of special. Something that I don't normally have, and it just reminds me of how many simple pleasures there are in life. And I love those moments when you realize, oh, I don't need big things to make me happy. I just need to be in a calm place where I can experience the little things.
1: Right. And where I can, yes, where I can listen to those little things making me feel good.
0: Jen, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Did you like that dramatic pause I had? That was not intentional, but my God, I think I should be up for some type of award there, Jen. Little pause. Thank you so much. That almost sounded like (laughs) me DJ voice. Um, I love talking to Jen. Uh, Got an update from her because this was that was recorded uh, about two years ago. I record way more episodes than I air. Um. Uh, and I've recorded. Yeah, I have a backlog of episodes that you. You don't need to know. Um, she is doing well. Uh, she's no longer broke. Uh, still smoking some weed, but she's uh, finding her desire to do it is waning a little bit. Uh, the food stuff is pretty much the same. Um, and, uh, yeah, she still has a lot of peace in her life. And uh, you can follow her at Jen Curran on Twitter. Uh, J-E-N-C-U-R-R-A-N. Before we do some surveys, I want to welcome our newest advertiser, Zip Recruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where you want to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, posting your job in one place ain't going to cut it. No. If you want to find quality candidates, if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can with ZipRecruiter.com. You can post your job to 100-plus job sites including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast find out today why Zip Recruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, you guys the listeners can post jobs on Zip Recruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com/first. That's ziprecruiter.com/first. One more time to try it for free, go to ziprecruiter.com/first. Uh Another sponsor today, Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices, and is delivered in a small, how-did-they-do-that-sized box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. Do not underestimate the importance of breathability in sheets and mattresses. Uh, An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper it combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce plus it's breathable design sleeps cool and helps you regulate your temperature through the night uh, and let's be honest myself and a lot of you guys we spend more time in bed than any other place uh, buying a Casper It's completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. They understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it, or in our case, half your life on it. Again, free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. And uh, most importantly, it's made in America. Uh, So get $50.00 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash mental and using the promo code mental. Terms and conditions apply. Again, 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash mental and using the promo code mental. You know, one of the first things I do every morning is, uh, well, first I run my fingers through my gorgeous head of hair. I flex my biceps, and then I go and uh, put a couple of drops of ProbiMune on my tongue because it is a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health and contains a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. Your immune system needs a healthy gut. Your mood is related to your gut. They have an industry-leading fermentation process that ensures the largest number of good bacteria are delivered alive in your gut. Because it's not how many are in the bottle, it's how many survive the digestive process. Uh, ProbiMune is super easy uh, to use. It's just If you can use an eyedropper, you can use Probeimmune. Uh, it's easy to travel with. It doesn't require refrigeration. And right now, you guys can get the exclusive offer of a free bottle of Probeimmune when you sign up for automated delivery. That's a thirty-four dollar. Slow down, Paul. That's a thirty-four dollar and ninety-five cent bottle of ProbiMune free. All you got to do is go to ProbiMune.com, and that's spelled P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code Mental at checkout. You'll receive your first bottle of ProbiMune free and you pay just $6.75 shipping and handling. Then each month, Young Health, who makes Probe Immune, will automatically send you your supply of Probe Immune for $34.95 with free shipping and handling. So go to Probe that's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout to get your free bottle today. It does affect your mood, having a healthy gut. Um... Before I get to the surveys, want to remind you guys, uh, there's a couple of different ways that you can support the show if you feel so inclined. Using, uh, our advertisers who I've just told you about is a huge, huge way to, to do that. Um, becoming, uh, a monthly donor is a huge way to do it. You can do it for as little as five bucks a month. Just go to our website, metalpod.com. You can be a one-time donor or a a monthly donor. And it means the world to me um, that we need a bigger budget uh, to keep the, the podcast running, to incorporate some of the ideas that I want to do, um, traveling outside the United States to interview people. I would love to be able to bring in guests that don't live here, have a budget for that, and we just don't have the the, the budget for any of that stuff. Um, you can support us if you're going to buy something at Amazon. Enter through the uh, Amazon logo on our homepage. And uh, we also have some books there that we recommend, books that we've mentioned on the podcast. You can support us non financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good review, um, a good rating. And you can, uh, this is a huge way to, to help us, is spread the word through social media about the podcast. Um, that brings more listeners and that all helps. Um, so. Or as I like to say, uh, sit there with your thumb up your ass and uh, drain me. Herbert does it. Actually, I don't think he's ever put his. Uh, what what would the the dog equivalent of a thumb be? Uh, your dew claw. Sit there with your dew claw up your ass. All right, let's get to the surveys. Uh, this is from the struggle in the sentence survey, and it's filled out by Megan, and she writes about her depression uh, being so good at faking it that I've been asked. To prove how depressed I am, to prove that it's not a phase or a fad, uh, when I finally try and confide in somebody, that has to be so fucking depressing. Um, cutting. Been cutting myself for eight years, not knowing how to cope with emotions if I don't, and worrying that I'm being dramatic by referring to it as an addiction. It, the meanness of the brain knows no bounds. Uh, about experiencing sexual bias, Uh, not that she's bisexual, not being gay enough for the gay community, not being straight enough for the straight community, being just queer enough for your imaginary threesome, but not for your respect. Wow, that is profoundly put. A snapshot from her life: standing at a bus stop in jeans in the middle of the summer, sweating your ass off when someone asks why you're not wearing shorts in this heat, having to come up with a shitty excuse because you can't tell them that your thighs are covered in scars and fresh cuts. Thank you for that, Megan. I love this guy's name. Less feelings, more donuts. I, if you put out a newsletter, I will subscribe. Uh, About his depression, like being bullied by God. That's Hall of Fame right there. About his anxiety, like I will have to write a 20-page paper later on the pizza toppings I chose. (laughs) These are good. These are good. Snapshot from his life. When my therapist asked me if I had a plan to kill myself, I realized... It was causing me so much anxiety having to work out the details, note, means, location, throwaway pornography, that I haven't been able to actually make any progress on it. The same thing that won't let me get a better job or clean my apartment or make friends or decide what I should eat for dinner is the same thing preventing my depression from killing me. You are an observant and uh, articulate dude. Thank you for that. Living the dream uh, shares an some moment. I experienced childhood sexual assault and had zero desire to even acknowledge I had a vagina growing up. So when the time came for my first gynecological visit, I was terrified. I thought uh, I thought all of my lady parts were disgusting, horrific nightmares of shame and grossness. So while my doctor was inspecting my vagina, I asked, does everything look normal down there? He responded, you've got the cleanest vagina I've seen all day. That is, that is right. Re- that is the definition of awfulsome. Um, how, do you, how do you pronounce this? Walls fall. Live now. Uh, shares a happy moment, and uh, he writes. And I think, uh, I think uh, English might be a second language. I'm not sure. And, and please forgive me if uh, if it's not he he writes i i had been feeling depressed for a while i keep thinking that people are judging me i am angry that i work so hard and i never seem to move forward or promoted however saturday i went to work feeling really down my life was flashing from being born as a bastard son aka jon snow Just like Game of Thrones, just heartaches. I thought of my life from sexually molested to always feeling like I don't belong here to when I had shared this with people that I go to church with and nothing. I just feel that I'm in a bubble and I can't breathe and people don't see me. But at last I started to think, help someone or say something to someone that is in a worse situation. I was at Walmart. This young homeless lady asked me for money, so I gave her some money. Uh, Then, I had told my employer that I was thankful for the opportunity to work for them. My boss cried with tears, telling, you have no idea that means so much to me. She was under a lot of pressure, depression with medication, and lost so much business. I had realized that sometimes I can help others with actions and words of encouragement. Uh, Finally, I had spoken to my wife, and by listening to the podcast, I would start going to a support group. Thank you so much thank you so much my favorite stuff to read uh, struggle in a sentence dr. fat tits specializing in racing thoughts and jumping to conclusion writes about his anxiety if I'm not hundred percent if I'm not productive hundred percent of the time then I will be a failure lose my job become homeless and die in the gutter oh in yours you get a gutter I don't even get a gutter in mine uh, about his binge eating throwing away ice cream because i couldn't stop myself from eating it digging it out of the trash five minutes later and eating it from the carton hunched over the sink like a fucking animal mixing hydrogen peroxide in the carton on throwaway attempt number two in order to force myself not to dig it out again by another quart the next day because i can control myself this time man i know so many people that describe that exact same thing Oh, buddy, sending you some love. Maybe Ben and Jerry's will come out with a uh, a, a, a flavor that's got a, a core of hydrogen peroxide. So when you hit it, you stop uh, you stop eating it, and you throw it in the trash. How about trashy blonde? How about that for the name of it? That's right, Paul. Make make his lifelong pain your punchline. Space Cat shares a Shaman secret survey. She is straight in her 40s, raised in a chaotic environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, repressed memory that I don't want to bring to the surface, but I believe my mother molested me. Have you ever heard of this? I know it's there, but I don't want to recall it. Yes, I have heard of this. And um, whether or not it's true, investigate processing what it is you're feeling the memories aren't as important as the things that you're triggered by and just getting the ball rolling by talking to a professional or a support group or a trusted friend or somebody who's who's safe um ever been physically or emotionally abused uh no uh I feel that she violated me, but it's strange because I don't want to think about it, so I'm able to keep it locked away with little effort. I forgive her because, long story short, her childhood was a nightmare. But I am very angry. I don't know. I am now a mom myself, so I just want to put all my effort into breaking the cycle. It's so complicated. Um, you write, I forgive her because, long story short, her childhood was a nightmare. This isn't about her. This is about you giving weight to your feelings whether or not you want to forgive her whatever was her intent if stuff happened my opinion separate issue to be dealt with um separately uh a lot of people never proceed in processing trauma because they say they think to themselves it's not prosecutable they didn't mean it um I should forgive them, and then they, they, that wound never heals, and the cycle does continue. Even if you don't abuse your kid in the way you were abused, maybe you're overprotective of that kid. Maybe your kid senses that constant anxiety or depression or whatever, but um, you are not alone. I just want to let you know that you are not alone, and give weight to what you're feeling. monstar m-o-n-s-t-a-r um this is a shame and secret survey and she's gay in her 20s and raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts I'm very bad at saying no in certain circumstances. In high school, this female seemed interested in me. It wasn't reciprocal, but I was friendly. She spent the night at my house and was very persistent and was really trying to have sex with me. I didn't outright decline. We didn't end up doing it, but there was some touching that I still don't know how to feel about. I had much more control over the situation than I exercised. My lack of interest should have said enough and i think this is a perfect example of what i was just talking about and the other reason i wanted to read this is because this describes the 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 other girl that is how i used to be i was that person where it 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 had to be obvious to me that the person didn't didn't want it and um When I started doing this show and realizing how many people shut down and don't say anything, that's when the, just my stomach dropped and I, my past kind of flashed before me. Um, darkest thoughts. I'm an ultra lesbian, i.e., I've only been with females. I believe sexuality is a spectrum. People seem surprised when I talk about any attraction to any male even though it's never enough to want to do anything with the male. I have to point out that liking a dildo is accepting that phallic that liking a dildo is accepting that phallic objects feels good and my vagina was made to like it. I don't tell anyone that sometimes I fantasize about guys. I don't want one. No one gets the difference. Well, we do. We do. And thank you for sharing that. Um, late sleeper, uh, shares about her codependency. I feel repulsed when my mother tries to hug me and then guilty knowing how much she does for me, her subsequent pouting and trying to grab me and force contact, fill me with anger, but the guilt doesn't go away. Um, snapshot from her life. I come from a culture in which arranged marriages are common. My parents are pretty liberal and have never forced us into anything, but I'm the youngest of their kids and none of us are married. Since I turned 30, my mom has been pressuring me to agree to a meeting with someone whose family she knows and approves of. I flatly refused, and she went ahead and started making plans with this man's family anyway. This culminated in the worst fight I've ever had with my mother. I very calmly repeated that no, I was not going to meet him, and her response was to yell at me that I was running out of time and that I would be all alone after my parents died. Did I know how hard it was to find someone after 30? She also kept repeating that I obviously didn't care about her and that I didn't love her. Boy, is she projecting her shit on you. Even though she had said those things in pretty much every fight we've ever had, something about this just broke me. Sitting there, reduced to a sobbing child, begging my mother not to make me do this with my hands shaking in my lap and seeing her react not with compassion but by telling me I clearly didn't love her, filled me with despair. Uh, After we had both become quiet, she came over and hugged me and acted as if everything was back to normal, while I couldn't move or say anything. Since then, she has never mentioned the fight and the last time we talked on the phone, she casually mentioned that she was still talking to the guy's parents. I did not have the strength to respond and made excuses to get off the phone. My whole body was shaking. I don't believe this reaction is really about meeting this guy. It's coming from the pain of knowing my mother's love is dependent on me doing what she wants, and when I make independent choice choices, that love is taken away. Yeah, you. I think you nailed it, and I hope that you can find some type of support group to, um, support network, some friends, s- somebody that you can. I don't know. Maybe you can do it on your own, but. Um, Your mom sounds like the type of person that is going to have to be threatened with not being able to see you to respect your boundaries. And I tend to think if you're not willing to do that, it's never going to change. And wishing for her to change and trying to reason with her with words to change is only going to make you crazier and more depressed. I don't know if crazier was the right... um, you know what I mean. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, shut up, Paul. You shut your fucking mouth. That was that was mean DJ voice in my in my voice. Uh, Awfulsome moment from a, a woman who calls herself. I'm finally cleaning my room regularly, and she writes. This last time I had to check myself into the metal hospital, I was in a shitty situation. My car was having issues and I was frequently using Uber. I always used Uber Pool since it's the cheapest option. I realize it's called Pool because there's a chance to share the ride with another person. This never happened to me until I decided to Uber my way to the metal hospital. The ride was awkward. The person in the backseat was belligerently drunk. I was suicidal. What a team. He was asking things like, do you guys think I'm a bad guy? I'm not a criminal. Where are we going? I was just trying to keep my cool. Needless to say, when we finally got to the hospital, he completely freaked out, screaming, asking if I was okay. I got out of the car as quickly as I could. I haven't shared an Uber ride with anyone ever since. And that story was brought to you by Lyft. (sighs) Maybe maybe Uber has added another category uh, to the left of Uber Pool uh, and it's called Uber Sketchy. That was a stupid joke. I'm a stupid person. I don't deserve oxygen. I might have overreacted. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by Herbert the Human. I don't know how he feels about that. Um, meaning my Herbert. He is straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, uh, never been physically abused, but he's been emotionally abused or not sure. He writes, my father verbally abused me throughout my entire childhood, but I never knew it was abuse until I listened to this podcast. I thought all dads screamed at their child when being frustrated about anything. Also, my parents both confided in me in a way that you might consider emotional incest. As a result of their divorce, both my mother and father treated me like a therapist when I was 15, often sobbing and collapsing in my arms, asking for guidance through personal struggles and sharing details about what ended their marriage, which involved them swinging with other couples. graphically sexual details that I now, now know are way inappropriate to share with your son, much less a fifteen year old. Um, yeah, that is that is straight up fucking textbook covert incest, and I'm so sorry you had to experience that. Um, I'm sure you've heard me mention the book Um Uh Silently Seduced by um I'm blanking on his name, but um it's a It's a great book and it's on our our little Amazon list of books we, we recommend. So check it out. You will find your story in those pages. Um, any positive experiences with them? It made me feel special to know that they valued my opinion and quote insight, but it also left me feeling an immense weight of responsibility darkest thoughts. I might have what some refer to as unwanted thought syndrome, where I often think about family members having sex with each other and sometimes having sex with me, usually while I'm talking to them. It's hard to focus on what your father is saying while you're envisioning your dick in his mouth and cringing inside. This comes from no place of desire, just an awful wave of graphic thoughts. Darkest Secrets. When I was 16, I stayed at my best friend's house for the night. I woke up in his bed, and he was giving me a blowjob. I was shocked, but stayed frozen. I didn't open my eyes and pretended I was still asleep, although I was fully erect. I came and everything. He put my dick back into my pants and went to sleep. We've never spoken about it since or even hinted that anything happened. It's almost like it happened in another dimension. It's still the only homosexual experience I've ever had, and it may not seem like a big deal, but when I think about it I have mixed emotions of being turned on but also feeling sick and empty sort of violated I was best man at his wedding a month ago Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you although I'm straight it really turns me on to think about sucking a stranger's large well-shaved cock feels fine to share that I'm comfortable with the thought Um, thank you for sharing that and uh, I wouldn't minimize, I would not minimize what, how you feel about what happened. And, um, I think it would, I don't know if I sound like a broken record, but I would talk to somebody, uh, about it. Talk to a professional about it, her trusted friend or, a, you know, you know, my broken record. Um, but that's, well, ask yourself this. If you read this story and it was a female, who woke up to this guy going down on her? Would you look at it differently? And my guess is you probably would. And you shouldn't. Because it doesn't matter what gender the person is or people are. what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i'd like to tell my parents that they hurt me that their lack of boundaries and emotional chaos has turned me into an alcoholic codependent mess not all of which is their fault but it wasn't fair even if i welcomed it i was a kid what if anything do you wish for to know what it's like to truly love myself i'm a year sober into recovery from 10 solid years of alcohol abuse and i feel like i've not even cracked the surface of knowing what self-love is Uh, If you share these things with others. I share with the therapist about wanting to tell my parents off. She had me pretend they were in the room and do just that. I broke down and sobbed harder than I've ever sobbed. It was cathartic. That sounds like a great therapist. And so maybe if you haven't talked about the the stuff with the friend, um, that might be good to talk about too. Uh, Here's... At the risk of sounding like I'm patting myself on the back, which I probably am, but I guess I just want to share with you how rewarding this job is. Um, feels weird calling it a job, but it is. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? He writes, Never forget how important this podcast is to people. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. You saved my life, Paul. I don't think I would have read that out loud two years ago because I would have been too afraid that you'd think I was full of myself. How can I... How can I... have such low self-esteem and be so pompous? There should be a medal for that. I don't know how I manage, how I juggle that. Let's see. Waffle Eater 2... Uh, who is a trans male, writes, I wrote in a few days ago on a shame and secret survey talking about my childhood abuse and regrets regarding sexual violence I perpetrated towards an ex-boyfriend. After that survey, I finally got the courage to do two things. Finally, delete my father and stepmother from Facebook, contact my ex and seek accountability. He understood. I talked about working on getting sober and recovering from my own experiences of violence. He told me he forgives me. And hopes the best for me it was painful during the process but now i feel so incredibly free a weight lifted from my shoulders i am so thankful that is just so beautiful <laughs> any comments to make the podcast better more stories about your cat wouldn't that be funny if all this time i had a cat and i never mentioned it um This is a shame and secret survey, and I'm only going to read a a couple of pieces of of, of this. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Forever Fighting the Black Dog, and she is um, in her 20s, straight, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My mom's ex-boyfriend used to get me to massage him with oils uh, whilst he was naked. He paid me to do it. I was 12 years old. To this day, sex and sexual acts disgust me. I still don't know if this was sexual abuse or not. I hope you get to hear me read this because trust me when I say, Every person listening to this episode right now is picking their jaw up off the ground, saying how in God's name would that not be considered sexual abuse? And back to my earlier soapbox moment at the beginning of the show, that this is what needs to be talked about publicly so that people can start to give weight to what happened to them. Any positive experiences? Um, and she uh, she was emotionally abused by her mom uh, and partner's uh, positive experiences. The emotional abuse from my mom is hard to prove and even harder to convince her that it happened. She sends me on a guilt trip anytime I mention it, and I end up believing that I'm the problem as usual. Darkest thoughts ending my life. Um Uh, She has no sexual fantasies. She hates sex, and the thought of it repulses her. And and she writes, I'm obviously not normal. You know what? You are normal, but what you experienced was abnormal. Sadly, common, but abnormal for the human psyche. And that is why your psyche adapted, but you are not broken. You know, and this is all my opinion. I'm not a professional, but... Um, you'd be amazed at the wounds that can heal with concerted effort and help. What do you wish for? Happiness and peace within. I'll never have this. You can have this. You can have this. And then any comments to make the podcast better, please talk less about sex. I have to turn the episode off when it becomes sexually explicit, more about emotional abuse. Um, I try to, I try to strike a balance, um, and I'm sorry that you get triggered, but know that it is something I'm, I'm, I think about, I'm conscious of, um, but sending you some love. God, my, I'm, I'm making a, like, when I'm doing my S's tonight, I'm like, uh, Whistling. Am I becoming that old guy, like that old Western guy? You know the guy I'm talking about? Um Talk more talk about more than just Herbert's butthole. Does he have nice ears, nostrils? Um Herbert is part Chihuahua. And but he's also overweight, so when we get his hair because I love his chihuahua face, we always i I always tell the person that grooms him you cannot cut him too short at least his face because I love the more chihuahua y the better um his my favorite body part of his is. His lower lip, because it is—it it looks like he was an actress in the eighties when they when they all, or was it the nineties, got the collagen in their lips. I think it was the nineties, um, and his bottom lip is just so plump, and it's always moist and reflecting light. And he's got this tiny little row of of like baby corn teeth, and there's one or two missing, <laughs> and so it just looks like a like a tiny corn of a cop of baby corn that's missing a couple of kernels um probably more than anything (laughs) the feature you see on him most is his gut he has very short legs and his gut looks like a stretched out red hammock just threatening threatening to graze graze the ground but i love him i love him um this is a uh, struggle in a sentence snapshot, and this is filled out by Petite Cut, and she writes, I was living in Cleveland and had decided not to go into work for the day, turned off my phone and had just stayed in bed, thinking at the time no one would feel like it was a big deal. Around 3.30 in the afternoon, I woke up to a co-worker standing over me. She was so worried and asked if I was okay because I hadn't shown up. I'm okay, just feeling sick today, I said, knowing she would take it as me having the flu or whatever. Your door was open, she said, just wide open. I hadn't even wondered how she'd gotten into my second floor walk-up when I saw her. I'd come in in the afternoon before, so caught up with my own thoughts, I hadn't even closed any doors after myself. I'd spent almost 20 hours in bed with all my doors wide open. After she left, I remember for the first time, Not just feeling sad that I felt depressed, but feeling truly scared for myself and scared that people might be starting to notice, might be talking about it when I wasn't around. It was the first time I'd ever felt caught in the mental circle of telling myself, you're paranoid, but you're depressed, but thinking about this isn't helping, but you're paranoid, but you're depressed, and on and on and on. Thank you. Thank you for that. I had to be. I had to be a big moment, man. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Kwijibo, K W Y J I B O. Um. I went to my first ever support group meeting. Partly, because, I mean, it's a codependency one. Uh, partly because of how positively Paul speaks about them on the podcast. It was at the local uh, community center, which I figured would be perfect. I go in, and there weren't many people there. No one seemed to have been uh, before, but there was one woman with a stack of dirty papers and a terrible wig who said that she was running the meeting. She starts by reading things about the program off the dirty papers and in an almost monotone. She had a couple of weird speech tics that made it almost impossible to understand what she was saying. After she barreled through the beginning of the meeting, I still have no idea what she said as it was my first meeting. She asked if anyone wanted to share. A woman raised her hand and started to share something about where she was in her recovery. About five minutes into it, the woman, quote, running the meeting said, this is too dark. Can you make it more hopeful? We were all stunned by the interruption, but I just assumed that this was a rule about not talking too much about bad stuff and only focusing on recovery. So the woman shared talking uh the woman sharing uh, talked a little bit more about how the program was helping her, but eventually talked a little more about the difficulty she was having at this point. The woman with the ugly hair stood up and said, "I have to go now." and basically left the meeting with the dirty papers and a fall-themed pillow that she had had in a plastic bag. At this point, I realized this woman was probably not following standard procedure, especially when she returned a third time, interu- interrupted yet again, and said, You're all a bunch of hillbillies. I don't understand why this story can't be more hopeful. Finally, someone else in the meeting said that if she didn't want to adhere to the group guidelines, she could leave, so she left and didn't come back. Someone next to me said, boy, if this was my first meeting, I would not come back. I told everyone it was my first meeting, and so far I was hating every minute of it, but everyone was so nice and welcoming that even with a woman calling us a bunch of hillbillies, it managed to be okay, and I may go back at some point. What a great example that just because it's a support group doesn't mean there aren't toxic or sick people uh, in it. Um, Where have all the mermaids gone? Writes about her OCD. Constantly reliving every dumb, awkward, horrible thing you've ever said and done. You know that girl at the store you went to once five years ago is still thinking about that awkward joke you made and what a horrible person you are about her codependency. That glorious second when you catch a bubble on your finger and it fills your whole being with all its wonder and magic, then it bursts, so you wave around frantically for the next one. Uh, Any comments to make the podcast better? I cringe and fast forward through every creepy DJ voice part, and it's only made worse by the fact that you know you're torturing half your listeners. But I still love you, Paul. I'm not gonna. I I could do it right now, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Uh, and it's not a uh, creepy DJ voice, is it? I think it's mean DJ voice, but you hear him as creepy. Um, that's because deep down i'm a terrible person, um, and not just terrible, like uh you know like those uh rods of nuclear waste, mine is like that, but it's alternating nuclear waste and feces that's at my very, very core. Yucky baby shares about uh her borderline personality disorder, a fire inside of me that I constantly have to tame. Sometimes it feeds my compassion and keeps me warm. Other times it gets out of control and burns me from the inside out. That sounds so overwhelming. Wow. Sending you some love. And I've heard that description. Like like your skin is on fire. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Maeve, and she writes, "Some, uh, Sometimes I'm outside, and the sky is so beautiful, or I notice something simple, like the smell of earth after it rains, and for that moment, I am glad I decided to live another day so I could witness it. Thank you for that. So good to be reminded. Mm, J. Carp, uh, who is gender fluid, writes about their depression. Uh, just simply, this might be the most concise definition of depression ever the desert short sweet to the point about uh, their anxiety even babies might kill me that is a good one about their alcoholism and drug addiction wanting to drown pain with pain and about their ptsd everyone has a knife but got to guess where it is that that is hands down the most concise struggle in a sentence, uh, ever. Nicely done. Quiet One writes about her anxiety. How can I trust a body that confuses ordering food at a restaurant with a bear attack? My God, that is fantastic. Uh, About her codependency. Making up after a fight, I ask you, are you sure we're okay? enough times in a 10-minute period to the point where you're mad at me all over again. Why is that so easy to picture? That is so easy to picture. Um, this is a uh, an email I got from a guy who calls himself, uh, or wants to be referred to as shame as it ever was. And he writes, um, Oh, do 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 do, do, do. I remain a huge fan of the show and I'm a longtime listener. Uh, it's my favorite podcast and has been there for me through thick and thin. Um, uh, being a bipolar recovering addict, I thought I had known helplessness and the darkness, but the illness showed me whole new levels of suffering. Um, your show was my constant companion and an important life jacket. You'll always have my gratitude. Listening to the latest episode, I was dumbstruck by the sweeping statements made about therapy, namely that everyone should do it, maybe even the whole world. I'm happy therapy has helped so much, Paul, and I have no doubt it has helped thousands more, but extensive personal experience tells me that therapy is not the solution for everyone. Generally, this statement is followed by the pronouncement that I simply haven't found the right therapist, that I just need to find the right kind of therapy. As a person inclined to Buddhism and philosophy, chiefly the early Greeks, I tend to think differently about the nature of my experiences, the substance of my ego, and in fact the very nature of life. I have not found any therapeutic approach to be genuinely useful. I have benefited enormously from uh, working the Twelve Steps with various sponsors and sponsees in contemplative meditation, philosophical study, and careful attention to the nature of self. Despite this, I continue to be pushed and prodded into pursuing therapy. The idea seems to be that therapy universally produces beneficial results. Somewhat ironically, this statement always comes from a person who takes their samples only from people who have benefited from it. It is a form of confirmation bias. I hope to bring to your attention uh, the obvious parallel with proselytizing and fundamentalist religion. What does a fundamentalist do? They preach the word and they know what the whole world and everybody in it needs. Um, And I tried to take this in. I tried to um, objectively look at it. And I decided that fundamentalists don't try to sell people on religion. They try to sell you on their religion, on their particular type of it. I've never seen a fundamentalist person that says, go try some type of spirituality. Um, And they say that you're a terrible person if you don't, or you're doomed if you don't subscribe to my religion. So I don't buy that parallel. Um, And maybe this is me being dramatic, but I would rather risk losing a listener from being annoyed than from not seeking help and taking their life. And I'm willing to take that, to take that risk. But I appreciate your, your, um, your input. And I always welcome, uh, input. So thank you for that. Um, I just want to read a part of this one. It's a shame and secret survey filled out by, uh, blip blop who is non-binary and darkest secrets. Um, Oh, this is, yeah, this, this really should have been an awful uh, moment. Um, I've been really sexual ever since I could remember, even though I didn't know what sex was. Um, when I was really little, about seven to nine, my younger cousin, one year younger, and I would do a role play game. Uh, This happened uh, three to four times and it stopped before I was 10. We've never talked about it. I'm not sure she even remembers or if she does uh, and told our family. I used to worry that I was a pedophile because of this. I'm bisexual, but feel so much shame when I'm with A woman, it's hard for me to get past the three-night stand point. I get panicky that I'm sinning, even though I'm agnostic, or that I will lose my family over it. Because of this, I have a reputation in the local gay scene for being a tease, even though it feels so good. I often have to get almost blackout drunk to fuck a woman. I'm otherwise a sex addict and discard men like gum wrappers. And here's the part that is awfulsome. She mentioned that she used to role play with her cousin. Here's the role-playing. I I was the boy and a bartender, and she was an alcoholic woman who came to my bar, and we would talk about our unhappiness and drink fake drinks. That is so awful-some. If I saw that in a movie, I would be like, there is no way that kids would role-play sad people in a bar. That is amazing that you, amazing and sad that you knew <laughs> that that was what happened in bars. Oh my God. And I don't, I am not laughing at you. I hope you understand that. That is just so awful. And the other reason I wanted to read this is you, you you write, um, I'm otherwise a sex addict and discard men like gum wrappers. Um, it, there are two sides to sex addiction. People who avoid, um, intimacy and people who, um, are obsessed with people. They're both different sides of the same coin, which is an intimacy disorder. So, I guess I say all of that to, to say it's all of the stuff that you're dealing with. To me, seems like it's rooted in fear of intimacy. And, um, I mean, here's a snapshot. What if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why? I think this, I think this gives you a picture of her upbringing. Uh, I'd like to say lots of stuff to my dad. Here's one. Dad, You really gave me a complex that day when I ran through the kitchen chasing my little brother and our two friends while you and the friend's parents were playing Kaiser and you joked out loud that I would be pregnant by the time I was 14. Thank you for sharing all that. And she was bullied also um, as a kid, relentlessly at school. Um... So, yeah, it, um, and by the way, you are not a pedophile because, you know, when kids fool around with kids, that is, that is not pedophilia, um, but thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by daytime is for napping and she writes, um, my family was on a trip visiting relatives. I was around eight at the time. For some reason, my father and I were outside and I was delighted because he was playing with me. It was just a minute or two of roughhousing, rough but I remember it clearly because there was a child nearby who, knew, uh, who I knew had lost his father. I'd been imagining what we looked like to him I thought he saw me as one of those kids whose dad plays with him, when really I was a kid whose dad was hardly around. As this stuff's going through my head, my father says, let's stop. That kid doesn't have a dad. We don't want him to feel bad. I feel guilty because, of course, that was exactly what I wanted, but I got up with him to go back to the house. Hoping to extend the little time I had with my father, I decided to ask him a kind of innocuous question. Uh... uh, And I said, so how do we know Michael? Uh, Some guy connected to the people uh, that we were visiting. My father turned to me uh, and smiling warmly as we walk. And he said, him and your mom had an affair. Everything halted like the needle being yanked off a record. My blood turned to ice and I was rooted to the ground, just paralyzed with confusion. He then turns to me with wonder on his face and asks, Can you imagine her loving anyone but me? Shaking his head and never breaking his smile, he says, come on, we better go inside. They're waiting for us. That is just... What the fuck? What the fuck? (sighs) Okay, I gotta edit. I got two more in me. And when I say two more dicks, I'm starting to get stretched.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, this is from the being hospitalized survey survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself eat this bitches. And she was hospitalized because she was in a manic state, unaware of the fact that she was experiencing late onset bipolar and describe your experience the first treatment center I went to specialized in mood and eating disorders it's in my genes to lose weight when I'm under a great deal of stress it's a family thing thing since I was not sleeping and burning the candle at both ends for months I dropped a lot of weight although I was diagnosed properly as having bipolar disorder the treatment center insisted that I was also anorexic I did not believe this to be true At one point, after being locked down in the facility for nearly a month, not being able to walk the grounds at all, the thought being those diagnosed with anorexia should not walk freely and had to be transported everywhere on a golf cart. The belief was that anorexics take any opportunity to burn calories. Well, I lost it. I'm not proud to say that I scared the shit out of one of the uh, day staff, demanding to be let out of the facility. She swiped her access card, and I took off running barefoot, one of the support service employees, ironically, someone from the cafeteria, <laughs> I didn't even catch that the first time I read this, saw me running by and asked if I needed help. It was obvious that I was doing my own thing, escaping the constraints of the system, even for 10 minutes. I remember she smiled at me as I continued to run past. Not a smirk, but a do-what-you-need-to-do smile. I was then followed around the grounds by a white van I deemed as the crazy bus. All the while, what? uh what one of the ther all the while one of the therapeutic day staff members was hollering at me about the various consequences of my behavior basically to get my shit together and comply The following day, my main therapist at this treatment center brought in members of my family for a meeting without my prior knowledge. This meeting was to make decisions regarding my future treatment. As I grappled with this fact of not being informed of anything, my therapist came to my room. I opened the door and said, this place is full of shit and so are you. She simply agreed. Within 12 hours, I was on a plane uh, with my father because you cannot travel unaccompanied while crazy. I went to a different treatment facility in another state. Once I arrived, the first interaction with my new therapist was the polar opposite of my previous experience. She gently put her hands on my shoulders, looked into my eyes, and asked me what I needed. I replied, a bath. She showed up five minutes later with two fluffy white towels and directed me to the bathroom. It was the first time during my treatment experience that I felt like a human, not just a patient, or a diagnosis to be dissected and fixed. Because of the compassion and support I felt from her and the staff at this facility, I was able to work on accepting my diagnosis, which, big surprise, did not include anorexia. I would like to encourage those that face inpatient treatment to know that the trajectory of your treatment is not out of your control. You have every right to contribute to your treatment plan. It is an experience that for you, it is an experience that for you that can be both empowering and healing. And when you must, say, fuck off. That was like a little movie. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. Um, and then finally, this is an email I got from Helen. And... She writes, I was at uh, New York Penn Station, and there was a lady there who looked to be homeless, talking to herself and yelling at random people. She would say things like, you motherfuckers stole my social security number. The police is waiting for me, and my food is on the stove. Someone in front of me said to the other person next to him, "Ah, she's probably schizo. She probably was schizo. This person, like many others living on the street, has the same thing I have. We're both schizo. I'm not suicidal but I'm losing will. I'm tired of being scared. I'm tired of being paranoid. Am I going to be homeless and yell random things at people on the streets one day? I was heartbroken. I then started googling things like schizophrenia success stories, schizophrenics in academia, schizophrenic professors since I'm going to graduate, I'm going to graduate school and my dream is to become a professor one day. I came across Dr. Ellen Sachs. And sometime after that, I came across your podcast. I felt hope. Listening to other people in your podcast, hearing their stories, listening to your surveys, and seeing that I am not alone in this exhausting quest for mental health has been so incredibly helpful. Better days are on the horizon, Paul. The good life is out there somewhere. We just have to keep going. Oh, and then she writes ps i stole the good life is out there somewhere is from the smiths i think it was appropriate that is totally appropriate thank you for that and um thank you guys for helping helping build this thing welcome to any newcomers um we've been lucky enough thanks to steve over at itunes uh to have been featured on the front page of itunes for the last couple of weeks and so we've been getting um, a nice uptick in in listenership. And to anybody who's new, um, if you're looking for episodes on specific topics, go to the website and in the search box uh, for our website, type in a keyword like bipolar or anorexia or dysfunction or, you know, whatever. And that will bring up episodes. It'll also bring up uh, blog pieces as well. And, every year when the year is done, we do a survey, um, and listeners rank their 10 favorite episodes. So that could be another place if you want to go, uh, find episodes, uh, to listen to. Um, and, uh, I appreciate your, your support very much. And, um, I hope you heard something tonight that, that helped you. And I hope you know that you're not alone and thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody up up I know is weird ways bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird
0: way. <laughs>